listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little mud sucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellers are gang. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Hi there and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. Well, today I had the good fortune of speaking with the myth, the man, the legend that is Rouser. Um, Rouser, if you're out there, thank you so much for coming over, being so generous with your time, with um, talking to me on so many different levels uh, about your life, your perceptions on life. Um, and your journey in life on this ball floating in space. Rouser, thank you. I just like, I had such a, a nice time, nice time, good time, uh, just chatting and, and, and listening to you. Like, you are, uh, yeah, wise. You're a wise elder uh, within our community, our surf community, our surf culture. Um, yeah, and, and I, and I just feel, I'm grateful that you came over and, and shared that with me. So thank you. Those of you that don't know Rouser, um, he is, uh, he's a man. <laughs> Rouser is a guy who has been, um, you know, I've heard his name. I have seen him in surfboard factories, you know, over the years through my life. Um, he's like the guy behind the guy. He's been there through all the stages of um, basically talky history of surfing. Um, you know, started at Clem Bell fixing dings. Um, Rob Brooks gave him a job. Like This is going way back into the early days of, of, of surfing in Torquay and, and then has sort of, you know, stayed in the game on different levels till today. He tells me today he's nearly 70. Now, you know, he's surfed all over the place. Um, he's an amazing musician. Uh, you know, like like anybody who is a human being, there's, we're all multifaceted beings. You're never just one thing, you know. Rouser loves surfing, surf culture, surf history, uh, he loves the earth and he loves music and, you know, the quantum physics that connects all the things, you know. Take that into the land of spirituality. Take that into the land of music and what's behind it and, and what it means to people and to, to, to connect into different groups and uh, and talk and talk, you know. Like, you'll understand what I'm saying I think if you listen to the conversation, but you know, Rouse is a deep thinker, and um, and and just uh, his presence is 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 nice to be around. He's very thoughtful. Um, so you know, uh, his band, the Janjak Jets, back in the day, set the place on fire. Um, and and Rouse is a musician who's played with you know hunters and collectors and it, Gary Croffle and. Dave Steele and and to some people these names mean something and to other people, you know, they don't. But if you're musically minded, and you, I'm just trying to give some context. So the, the Rouse is like a, a great musician as well. Um, 
but you'll you'll understand that more w- within the chat. Um, anyway, so that's a bit about Rouser. So Rouser, thanks so much for coming over. I really appreciate it, and I hope you um, enjoy our chat. Um, now, the other day I had to get under the house and clean it out. You know, I do a big clean out and I was trying to psych myself up and I don't know why I had money for nothing and, you know, Rouse's musically minded, so I just thought this thought might work in here. And I was like, you know, money for nothing and your chicks. And I was just rocking through. That's been a big song for me since I was, you know, in grade three whenever it came out around then. It was just like when I heard that that intro to that song, it's just the way it, <laughs> that was fucking terrible. The way it builds in, though, it's got this, uh, you know, builds, builds, builds. You know, what is this? What is this? And then that guitar riff that just fucking drops, slaps you in the face. And at, when you're a kid in the 80s and in grade three, like must have been 85 or something, that shit was fucked up. It was in my brain, in my small primary school brain, it was. And it still does it today. If I, like I did the other morning, I had it, I woke up, it was in my mind. And so I love to play the song that I wake up to um, and, and put it on, put it on loud, start the day. And so I did that and I was doing some dishes and, and that built in and I was just listening to the lyrics. It's a, G, it's a fucking great song, you know, written through the eyes of someone that works a, 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 a job that they're not stoked at, um, bumping in and out of, you know, TVs in and out of people's houses, fridges, uh, and looking at how good a life a rock star has it. And, you know, if you really think about the lyrics in that song and um, how Mark Knopfler wrote it and the point of view, and it's fucking to me, I, I don't know why I'm crapping on about it and it really hits a chord with me, but it did and it did that morning and it's just, um, if, you, if you get a chance... Fucking turn it up by yourself real loud and really listen to it. Feel it. And I think the, the key word there is feel it. And, and, and in life, I just think if you can feel something, you know, try and put yourself in someone else's shoes or, or whatever it is or, or feel it when someone gives you an insult or a compliment, you feel it, then it, it, it's like life is vibrational. You know, and feelings are to be processed and they're there for reasons anyway. I don't know what the fuck else I'm going to say about that. But um, you're probably rolling your eyes and going, shut up and let us listen to the goddamn chat. Well, here it is. Thanks for tuning in once again. I'll see you on the other side. A complete and total barfarama. I, um, I reckon life... Well, the best thing I ever heard was once I had a, a st- my stepson had cancer at ten, and there was a there was a um, we're in the Royal Children's Hospital, and there was an old uh, older nurse in there. He w- he was like head nurse in the oncology ward at the Children's Hospital, and he looked at me one day and went, "Life is," <laughs> and I went, "Oh yeah, fuck yeah, it is. It owes you nothing, and for everyone, one way or another, it's a battle, you know." Yeah, you know, and if you go out in the ocean, and you get serious about it, it it's it's merciless. It, you know, we love it, we think it loves us. It owes us nothing. It takes us nowhere, and it gives no one any favors. I like it. That's what I like about the ocean. It teaches you that in life. Life doesn't give you favors. That's a, that's a bit of a furphy that people think. Oh, you know, I deserve better. Well, no, you get what you get. 
paddle out, try and get through. Yeah. In life. Yeah, yeah. That That's what being around the ocean all my life has taught me, just keep paddling out. How many times you've been on the beach and it doesn't happen all the time, but you get washed back in and you have to regroup yourself and paddle out. Or we've had a really heavy wipeout and it's rattled you and you have to go, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in and cry or I'm going to try and paddle out. And they, if they see the tears, just go, that's just salt me. <laughs> <laughs> but Bells is like merciless for that. Mm. When it's a bit bigger, it's just luck and timing. Well, that is the place, one of the couple of places I've, I've paddled out and got washed back in, you know, paddled out off Rincon on a big day and ended up just about, you know, squished on the, on the button. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and a couple of times, Winky Pop on a big day. I think the best one at Winky Pop that it got me was when I paddled out not far from the button there and um, it was a big drift, quite a big drift. And I got almost got out at lower lowers and then another set just caned me again and I ended up getting washed down into the valley at Boobs. <laughs> it was the middle of winter. <laughs> and so, you know, there was nowhere to go so I actually uh, came in, decided I'd, you know, Really foolishly, I should have paddled a jam jug. Yeah. I tried to go up the cliff and I did. So I'm dragging my board up behind me and fingernails and cut that red clay, yeah, slippery yeah, mud yeah. shit. Got it. They'd call in the choppers these days, but you just did it. And then by the time I walked back to my car at Winky Pop, everyone who'd had the session come in and go, Where the fuck did you go? <laughs> You're like, Don't fuck it up. I didn't even answer. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked at him and said, Bitch. <laughs> Don't say a word. <laughs> you know, humbled by an ocean. That That's what the ocean has taught me. Hey, big boy, you're about to get your ass kicked, you know? Yeah. I love that, though. Yeah, I do too, but I love it more when, I'm, when it's not happening and it goes in your favour. Oh, that, always. Always. But, but isn't that the way that, you know, when it goes in your favour and you're on a run and you think you're a fucking legend that day yeah, and yeah. everything, you're falling into waves and you're just making it all the better for it because the other days are like, okay, oh, welcome to my horror movie, you know? Oh, like, oh, fuck, finally you're in the box seat. Yeah. You fall out of the sky and someone's on your fucking inside and where do they come from? They just yeah. snuck around the button and then you feel like an absolute cunt because everyone's seeing that yeah. and not understanding the little chess game that had just happened. Ah, oh, you know, and it just gets so cerebral sometimes. Yeah. Oh, all the time. All you know, the time. You know what? Another thing to think about is like, you know, when I started surfing, it was in uh, in Williamstown in the Bay, believe it or not. So can we? Can I just ask, what, like, when was this? Oh, that was about nineteen sixty-five when the Beach Boys started singing. Really, I, don't you know, know. I was a kid. Yeah. Were you inspired by the Beach Boys? Oh yeah. Yeah. And that whole vibe, you know. Yeah, me too. Caught me. Well, I mean, at a later date, mm. I grew up on a farm, mm. but I would grab onto anything that had any surf in it. Yeah. And the Beach Boys was a big one. But anyway, yeah, sorry. Well, look, I, I grew up in Yarraville and there weren't any waves there. But I went down to Williamstown Beach and there were these guys surfing like tiny little waves. But I started to say, well, you know, that, that looks like fun. And then um, after the first time I paddled out, I was addicted from the start, you know. Yeah. And there was a bit of a surfing culture there because 
Clembell Surfboard started from two guys in Williamstown and they opened their first factory in um, Spotswood. Then they were the first real serious surfboard factory in Torquay. You know, that's just a little bloke chewing his bones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, her bones, sorry. Her, her bones, sorry, yeah. And so I used to get a lift uh, later on, you know, I, I se- seemed to resonate with those guys and, and, and when... So is this, you'd hang out at the factory in Spotswood? No, I never did. Yeah. I never did, but um, I, I was one of those guys that the first time I smelt a surfboard getting made, like resin, I just went... <sighs> I love it. And you still get people coming in that say, oh, I love that smell, or other people come in and go, oh, my God, how do you work here, right? So there are certain weird individuals that are attracted to the smell of surfboards being made. You can be cured with a hot mix in the mornings. <laughs> that can fucking cure anyone, right? When it just stinks and smokes and carries on. I always say, like, for me, like, walking into that smell... There was, I don't know, it sounds really wooey, but it, magical. It did that to me too, and I still love it to this day. I don't try and go and sniff it, mind <laughs> you. I wear a respirator and everything, but I, uh, I still love it. And I still, you know, that's the one thing in life that I love. I'm still making surfboards, and I probably will until, oh, I don't know. You know, they'll probably, they're getting close to throwing a lasso around me and dragging me off. <laughs> but as long as what I do is, is still good. I'm there, you know. So going back, um, you're saying you know you walked into a surfboard factory and smelling that smell, and, yeah. And what was the, the the through line with that? Like you saw some guys surfing, you did it, and you're like, I, I just love this. The the if I just go with my own feelings around that was like I wasn't any good at it, and the ocean was a scary place. But it challenged and it offered me this whole set of things that life, you know, on land wasn't giving me at all. And the subculture I wanted to be part of, like these dudes in old Holdens. Fucking... Oh, see, see, then it it was. I know where you're coming from, hmm. and I like. I'm I'm more like that now than I was then. Then I was like a lamb to the slaughter. Okay. I didn't know what the fuck I was getting myself into. All I knew that I liked I liked the feeling of riding waves yeah. and, I, and I loved the ocean. It was fairly empty then, but there was no glory in it at all because, it, you know, you did say to me the other day that there were things between, you know, now and then and, and how do I feel about it. The one big thing I feel about it, when I started surfing and, and all the guys that were then, there was a, a a smaller number of surfers. It was very tribal, fucking seriously tribal. For instance, you didn't go and walk up to the fire on the beach at Bells, which was there every day unless you're invited. You just stayed back and you didn't. You wanted to get warm because there were no wetsuits at the start. There were board shorts and footy jumpers, you know, like footy. <laughs> and you'd froze for the rest of the day. But the biggest thing was that drew us together, even if you didn't like a guy or you didn't know him, surfers were looked upon, even in this town and the wider society, as scumbags. Right, and you weren't loved. You'd go down, you know, walk past a footy club, and they'd all sort of, you know, fucking seaweed brains and shit like that, you know. And 
and you really looked down upon. So in a way, we were pulled together a little. Yeah. Right? But that didn't mean that you were going to get any easy ways in. So for me, I, you know, was surfing before leg ropes and I was a little grom, used to paddle out, you know, and guys would sort of snarl at you without even saying a word. They'd just look at you and go, don't. And so you didn't paddle inside. You just didn't. And then um, our in, I was hitchhiking down the coast here when I was 13 and 14. I don't know why, but my mother let me grab a board on Friday night, sleep in me soft board bag at um, those surf sun 10 flats in the um, in the showers. I got outdoor showers. Used to sleep in that. And then we um, progressed to walking along, get a lift to Torquay Friday night and fill up with food and walk out to Bells and sleep in the girls' toilets, right? We wouldn't sleep in the boys because we were worried about getting belted up. So, um, wow. So when did the toilets go in? The, th- there's a there's a block of toilets that aren't there anymore. You know um, where the windmill there used to be a windmill there. Well, yeah. there was also a set of blo- uh, toilets there. Okay, they're gone. Yep. But we used to walk walk there and spend the whole weekend at Bells and just get up before sunrise and sit on the button and wait for the wait for the sun. We, we were just I don't know. We didn't get a girl till we were eighteen because we were too busy trying to chase this thing that had just addicted us. You know, really fully addicted. And, um, but yeah, if everyone's looking at you in society like, oh no, people ask me, why do you surf? Now they go, they (laughs) almost look at me and go, you better surf or I'm not even fucking talking to you. You know, it's it's a bit like that. So that backflip of the coin's been the most amazing thing for me. I always thought surfing would get popular because it just felt so good, you know, but I never imagined that it would grow to you know, pretty much wholehearted acceptance by the whole community, you know. And everybody's got their finger in a pie somewhere that is involved in the ocean. And around here, and we are Torquay, this scene was like a, a tiny little, well, it was a country town. It was like, it was barbaric yokels here, you know. Like it was the first time I put my head near the... Um, Torquay Hotel was it? I was about sixteen, and I looked through the windows from outside, and th- this was a Friday night, and and I'm telling you the truth, there was this guy, big Mo, he was a oh, yeah. boat person from the lo- lifesaving club here. He had three young guys on a rope tug of war. They went flying over his fucking head and into the wall, like, and I just looked at it and was like, to me, it was like <laughs> the wild west. Holy shit! And it was like that. You know, it was really fucking like that. And the whole surfboard scene was in, in its total infancy, you know, mm. and there was no big rip curl factories or anything like that, you know. It was just um, they were working out of the bakery just down in town here, you know. Um, Clammy's opened up the first real surfboard factory on Geelong Road there and, and you, I can remember I ended up working there. And I'll shoot straight to that. Um, Rod Brooks offered me a job because I spent so much money getting dings repaired. (laughs) I was his number one customer. He said, Rouse, I think you should apply for a job. (laughs) I went, that's the first time I went twang. (laughs) Was that your first job in the industry? Yeah, fixing dings, sweeping floors and gluing blanks together and copping all the shit, yeah. 
And that was at Clem Bell? Yeah. Yeah. And Rip Curl was already operating then and um, Pikey. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up working for all of those people, you know, Pikey. And was Ray Wilson working for Pikey back then? Yeah. 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 And he was a fantastic surfer. Yeah. You know, and awesome waterman. And and some of the people around here, you know, were just like, he could write a book about each of them in those days because they got up to stuff, you know. They really did. Now, jumping back into getting up to stuff, um, spoke to Roscoe Slavin and he said, you can say anything you want, but he tells me that you guys got up to a lot of mischief um, probably just before this time, m- maybe hedging into this time. Um. Well, <laughs> you've gone back in your seat a little bit. Can I be sued? <laughs> I've been banned from a few, you know, interviews for people's books, and they said not letting them near you. Yeah, look, I've walked around this town, and I've had people look me up and down, and I and I've quietly smiled and thought to myself, "You've got no idea what I've got on your old man," you know. <laughs> and I've seen guys drop in on me, and I go, "If I was to tell you a few things, you may not do that again." Yeah, yeah. So there's a certain amount of what you can and can't say to a degree. I mean, what can you say and what can't you say? I don't know. Um, like. If you put it into its context, I suppose, in that time, if you drove, if you had a licence, there was no speed limit in Victoria, there were no seatbelts in Victoria, and there was no drink 0.05 limit. There was nothing. So you got drunk, drove fast, and no seatbelts. Was it like put your finger on your nose and walk down the line kind of vibe? Or they, no, just whatever. Just when you hit a tree, oops. Right. It It was a wild west. Yeah. Everywhere. Going to, going to Geelong was like guys hanging out the windows of cars screaming and yelling at 120 mile an hour, pissed out of their heads, going to party somewhere in Geelong, fi- trying to find a girl because there were no girls down here then, right? And it's it Mad just, Max before. Oh, yeah, and then wake up in the morning and be out there, you know, eight to ten foot and whatever. Um, God help us. I don't know how I got through, to tell you the truth, <laughs> or any of them. Some didn't, actually. No, yeah. I've got a number of people who were friends who... Hit poles and a few others that never made it over the top of Mount Dunedin and stuff like that, you know. But it was just, you know, when you're young and crazy, it's all part plus the Vietnam Wars going on, the the Cold War Soviets going on. And I tell you, it affects people's minds because you'd be sitting out there some days and looking up and going, oh, wonder if I'll actually see the missiles coming over because it was the threat was like. For real, it was on. No, no, when I was in primary school and on the farm and we'd get, our bus stop was in the middle of fucking nowhere and on a dirt road. Yeah. And I had a full tilt fear that I'd be walking home and bombs would just blow up. Like, that would be the end of earth. Yeah. That's, like, sorry, that's a dog. Um, but, yeah, I, I felt that as a kid, even, yeah. you know, so it was I, I reckon every generation does. You know, in a funny way, if I look back, my grandfather was in um, France at the Battle of the Somme and all that shit and somehow survived and come home. Dad was in New Guinea with his brothers on the Coda Trail and all that sort of shit, somehow made it back. You know, then my generation was the Vietnam War and here we've got the Ukraine, China cruising around, the threats, threats, always threats. So that's one thing that I reckon surfing can give you that outlet for all your... It's the way you get real. You get real when you pull into a tube and it's eight feet 
you know, where you're paddling out and it's 15 feet and you're caught inside, that, you know, none of that shit matters anymore. So that's what I think the therapy of surfing is, mm. more than anything else I've ever done. You know, the ocean has kicked my ass and put the fear of mortality in, into me a few times. You've got to think you're immortal when you're at your best, but it just picks you up sometimes by the scruff of the neck and holds you in front of itself, gives you a little <laughs> kiss on the cheek and go puny god and puts you back down you know that's that's how i feel i've been humbled many times you know well that's a really nice um what do you call that a metaphor yeah that was that was i had that was good visuals well that's what we're like you know because i think for me i when it started to get crowded around torquay and that was you know this is post leg ropes when before leg ropes it wasn't as crowded because you got to have you got to imagine this i think there were surfboard um factories rubbing their hands together every high tide because you know <laughs> hardly anyone out at winky pop high tide i used to go out at winky pop high tide fucking one is, is that why you were rod's favorite customer yeah, and surfing on your own <laughs> yeah because one one mistake your board's on the rocks and you know what the rocks are like at the pop at high yeah. tide. Fucking not very nice. So, yeah, and that's where Rod Brooks seriously said to me, you could invest in this business. Well, I made it my life, you know. That's that's the thing. But um, It's so not Sorry, I just cut you off. But it's so nice, this picture that you're painting of, like, walking past the football ground and being leered at and, you oh, know, yeah. high tide winky. It's just things you don't think about anymore. No, you, know, you take it for granted. Yeah. So you spend half your life swimming. If you know, even the best surfers in the world fell off. So you know, talk about fitness. You knew you had to be fit and you were fit because you know you're paddling out. You might get cleaned up. You never, never usually lost your board paddling out because you, you know, Eskimo roll do everything possible to hang on to it and get flogged. At, but don't lose that board. Yeah. But some, you know, one of the best things was paddling out. Big sets coming, and you jump off your board and push it up over, over the top of the wave, and spin in the air and blow back with the offshore another twenty feet. Hopefully, you could swim up to it before the next, you know, yeah, couple of waves came. You used to do shit like that, and you'd take off, bomb out, swim in, right? And if you're having a bad day. Three big swims in a row. Don't talk to me, right? <laughs> and everyone was the same. Some yeah. guys were cussing everywhere, you know. It was a sport for lunatics. Um, still is, really. Um, but, you know, that's that's the most amazing thing, I think, about the pre-leg rope thing. Then when leg ropes come, and got crowded. So, like, okay, you're either going to surf with the crowds or you weren't. So my philosophy was go away. I went away from them. You can always drive. Uh-huh. You still can. Uh-huh. So I used to wake up in the morning and, um, you know, I didn't have apps, weather apps, <laughs> but you did have to have that sense and be in the rhythm with the ocean and look at the sky and know the, what the swells were doing and what the wind, there's a front coming. You could look at those sorts of maps, low pressures and all that. So, you know, take off down the coast. Um, and in those days... Four or five boards on top, me dog in the back, and that was that. The only other guy I'd see down there would be Lynchy, and we didn't even talk for years. He just looked at me, and I looked at him. It was like that. You know, and then years later, you got drunk somewhere and go, Are you that prick? <laughs> yeah, I'm that prick. 
know, and he said to me a few years ago, I think the first time I seen you was uh, I nearly had head on with you out of Lavis Hill in between Apollo Bay and Lavis Hill where it used to be, all be dirt. I said, you're on the wrong side of the road. And he goes, yeah, well, so are you. <laughs> Going in opposite directions with our asses hanging out, you know. Yeah. But it was mad times. It was fantastic. So you'd whip down there. What, what sort of, uh, can I ask what you were driving in those days? Um, I had um, a couple of old Holdens, you know, EH wagons and shit like that. But when I was uh, <coughs> a bit of a serious nutcase, I think PK and me had, um, we just had little beetles with with fats on the back and extractors and shit like that. And we used to just about four-wheel drive them into the back of, you know, all over the places. Just about unboggable, those things. You can push them out real easy. And around the dirt... Herbie. Like you, yeah, you could drive round past through lawn and drive that way when you, the road was empty-ish. Pretty much as fast as you could going out through Colac and then down through Lavers Hill. Because you could just, like, on the wrong side of the road, flat stick, just rally drive. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Sometimes I didn't even want to get out of the car and go surfing. I was that pumped from driving. <laughs> I want to keep going. <laughs> And a few people who drove with me just said, I'm never getting in that car again. I said, no, we're here. <laughs> we're here now. Surfing seems rather tame, doesn't it? <laughs> they were already running with their board. Like, you know, my, my ex-wife, she's a lovely person. She had to put up with me being feral for all that time, so I do feel sorry for her. But um, the kids were going, oh, yeah, no, what was it like, Dad? And she goes, and I sort of painted this lovely picture of that we're all little, lovely, nice people. She goes, don't believe a word your father says. When I met him, he was driving a a Beetle with all his mates in it, smoking a joint with the window down on two wheels through the middle of Janjuk. So I used to go around those corners on two because those Beetles are really easy to control, you know. I I remember, it's funny that you say this because when I was a kid, you know, I was always, I was really into cars. And... One of my old man's mates was like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, I was looking at the Fords and the Holdens, and he was like, the fastest car in this town is a Beetle. Yeah. And I was like, what? He was like, mark my words. Around, around certain spots, yeah. Yeah, right. Right, around that squiggly, wiggly road. Yeah. You know, and look, it, it, it was great then because it wasn't, you know, in the wintertime, very, very quiet. You know, not like now when the tourism's up and everything and there's... You know, people driving at 30 k's and pulling up in the streets and going, wow, there's a koala, look at that, you know. <laughs> like, all I wanted to do was get to the surf, you know. Yep. So the, the best thing used to be to just go down um, pre-dawn, watch the sunrise paddling out, you know. And um, there were a whole group of guys from here, but not everyone. Like, it was really weird. Some people were very happy to just stay here and surf here and that's all. And then another bunch couldn't wait to get out of here, you know. And um, it's funny, we didn't all drive down together. Sometimes you would meet your friends, you'd come up a track and go, oh, fucking you're here. It was like that. You didn't tell everyone, oh, look, I'm gunning. If they made it there, you went, you're on the money, bro, you know. It's still like that to some degree now. Hmm. A lot of people don't talk. Which is still good. Yeah, great. You know, that's, that's like, I've always thought that, um, you know, I drove all over Australia with a couple of surfboards and a dog and in a panel van or whatever, and I always reckon that the, the, the one man, the one man or the one woman travelling show 
with their surfboards and a dog or whatever, with or without a dog. But that's that's an automatic visa as long as you don't paddle out and tell everyone to F off, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I've been, uh, I mean, I've never went to Queensland because it was too crowded and then I went up and visited my um, my sister who was living in Burley and I had my surf, first surf at Burley and it was really good. I got murdered on the rocks paddling out, got washed down into them and cut up, cut the shreds, had blood all over me. Finally got out, humbled already. The locals are sitting there, you know, and I thought, no, I'm not going to hassle anyone. I'm, I'm my tail's between my legs. And then this one local guy after about ten minutes said, we've all been where you've been, mate. Take one. All right, you're on. And then he just sat up. He actually did this and said, if anyone fucking drops in on this guy... Fucking paddle straight in. Awesome. And I, I didn't even know them. When was that? Oh, that would have been about um, mid-80s. Yeah, unreal. Mm. And that's, you feel, wow. Same, you know, in the desert, spent a lot of time in the desert in the early days. When um, the first leg rope I ever had, or ever used, believe it or not, I used it at caves out at Cactus. <laughs> And it consisted of a handkerchief around my ankle, a piece of cord with a hole drilled through the fin, paddled out. It was only about four to five feet caves, but the first experience of that wasn't very nice. Went straight through the rail. I know rail savers, and, and, and it punked and broke, and it really hurt. And I went, fucking leg ropes, you know? And then, then there was a debate after that when the the more decent upmarket leg ropes come that had rope on the inside and rubber on the outside and a little rail saver. Oh, yeah. We were saying, well, shouldn't you be able to surf first before you are able to have one of them so that you learn to swim properly and, and save yourself and you become a proper waterman? Why should you be allowed to have a leg rope and just paddle out if you can't swim? And there are still people out in the ocean that can't swim. It's funny, isn't it? Like in sometimes in some circumstances, uh, if I've broken my leggy or I've broken my board, to some degree, in some spots, I feel safer swimming. Mm. Like you know, I yeah. know, I've seen some people go to water a little bit, but like I wouldn't want that to happen at certain places. We know right down there. Yeah. But um, you know, like around that button zone, I back myself swimming over. Yeah. You know that. Yeah. You know you can swim deeper. Yeah. You can Side. dive under them. Yeah. You aren't getting pulled along by that no. smelly surfboard that yeah. acts like a fucking parachute. Yeah, pulls yeah. you backwards. It's just side stroke for a while. Yeah. Wait, you know. But, yeah. I, I, so that was a real thing. Like, I understand that, man. Like, fuck. Like, I, I, people having to buy their way in through the lessons that you guys have been through. I, I can see how that would have been a little well, bit of a... yeah, it was a bit of a... It, you had to, you know, you got knocked around, but no one, it wasn't so much people, it was just the ocean itself made you work hard to get to where you, you couldn't surf eight foot bells if you couldn't surf, because you wouldn't have made it out, okay, because you wouldn't have had the practice of falling off a million times at Torquay Point or Drano's or whatever, or Janjuk, and swimming all the time, Yeah. so you wouldn't think about it. So, you know, you'd go out there pre-leg rope days and there might be eight people in the water and it's goddamn perfect. And the only eight people in the water you looked at at the corner of your eye or you knew them, but you respected them straight away because to be there you had to have worked hard, right? So now it's a lot easier from the point of view of 
leg ropes, but I guess that's the way it is. But probably the most amazing thing I, I think I've ever seen as far as leg ropes and non-leg ropes go, and it's true, Wayne Lynch one day, in, in, in his heyday, we were at Castles and um, I was waiting to get changed and he was way, way, way out the back and he, f- he, he got axed on the takeoff, right? So he must have been like, you know, I don't know, half a K out. He was a long way out. It was a big day. It was perfect. So his board's washed in almost to the shore but into a bit of a channel that's just floating there and I kid you not, there were other people there that can witness this. He body surfed on the first wave he caught all the way. The one that he wiped out? No, not the one he wiped out on. No, no the next one. Next one. Yeah. He body surfed it all the way in on the one wave. All the way in. And that's just ridiculous. That's impossible. That's stupidly... Fucking, you can't do that. That's that's where the watermen were of right. those years. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Because usually that would it'd, it'd smoke you, pick you up, flip you over again. Yeah, push it down. Just, just the one wave. Yeah. And and I'm not joking. It sounds like bullshit, but on my mother's dying oath, and mum has passed away, so this is a sacred thing. I'm saying. He went right up to the board, put his hand out, and he he'd ridden that body surfing from way, 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 way out the back, down south. I've just, like, just stood there and I, I still can't believe it, but I've seen it with my own eyes. It's like Jesus appearing. It sounds like witnessing a hole in one. It was a hole in one. Yeah. You know, from when the guy wasn't even looking, like, a, or a basketball shot behind his back from yeah. past, the, past the three-line shot and got it over his head and banged straight in. Nah. So that's one thing I witnessed that still blows me out to this day. But so many people, it seems, have these stories of their own mm. about Lynchy. Mm. Yeah. You know, growing up, there's just <coughs> like the guy was spoken about in such <coughs> revere, mythical, like, who, what the fuck? How, is this, how does someone have such an, you know? Incredible. Yeah. You know, his mum was driving him around when he was like 14. <coughs> Excuse me. Down the coast. On the weekend on his own. There was no one riding down there before the world titles at all. And, and Wayne's down there at 15 and, and his mum, God bless her, driving little Wayne around, you know. And he's moaned and groaned a few times to me about, oh, you know, this, that and the other thing. I said, hey, mate, think about what your mum did for you back in those days when... This is before le- before their gropes, everything. She, she must have been one hell of a woman. Oh, Awesome. You know, how, and and he used to wag it at at um at school, and they could see him out at Lawn Point from the classrooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where were you? I was sick, and his mum had brought him a letter. <laughs> he was just addicted, right? So, oh yeah, funny things, though. But his mum must have been a real visionary because, like, a lot of you know, of that day, as you say, it was looked down upon. Yeah. Um, you know, it didn't have what it is. No one knew there was a career there. No one knew that it was going to become this thing. Well, there wasn't really a career there, but she, I think she just looked at it and said, well, my son, who I love, is absolutely mad and in love with surfing. I'm going to help him until he can get himself around. 
And I think also the thing was in those times, like, you know, Wayne's sort of pretty famous or infamous for that time for um, dodging the draft. Mm. There was a war hanging over our heads. They were taking 18-year-old boys, conscripting them and dropping them into the jungles of Vietnam and go, go, whether you liked it or not. You didn't. It's one thing to be a volunteer in the army. It's another one to say, like you and me, <laughs> stop paddling out there. You're going and dropping them in. Mentally, that was a big thing in our society at the time. There's a lot of debate about it. My dad, who had been in New Guinea, didn't think that we should be there. Wow. Right? And, yeah. he, and he was an old RSL man and everything. He goes, I don't think we should be there, son. So I don't really care if you want to go or not. I didn't really want to go, but um, who would? Um, oh, well, the people did sign up to go. Yeah, yeah, and you'll always find that. You know, there are certain sorts of people that believe in that sort of thing, and we can't sort of... Um, I don't want to say I'm no expert on um, whether we should have been there or not, but I'll just say one thing. I did see a documentary on SBS a few years ago that said... From the 10 million that were taken in Vietnam into re-education camps after the war, when the communists had taken over, they took 10 million people like teachers, doctors, ex-police, post office guys, a lot. From the south? From the south. Yeah. They only ever saw 5 million again. Yeah, right. Genocide. Yeah. So we don't... No one talks about that. Yeah. And so that is the evil of what... Communism is, you know, um, it's a pretty complex situation. And was Pol Pot running around then? Yeah, he was bumping them. He was really just getting ahead of steam up in, in um, Cambodia. The Khmer Rouge were thinking about, you know, we're not going to play football, we're going we're, we're to put them in internment camps and just um, wipe them. Yeah, it's fucking... Did you see the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam, 10-part series? Yeah. That... Was and it started with the French, yeah, or maybe even before the French, yeah, and that gave me the best understanding of just how, f- well, best understanding of what went down there, yeah, you know, like, you know, we should not have, oh fuck, but it was just, it was, I, the time. It, was it was, my little overview would be it was that was the eye of the needle between two larger things mm. pushing through. Yeah. Well, you know, I've seen um, documentaries again and since the Soviet Union broke up that, that they had plans on in um, taking over South, the whole of Southeast Asia well before the Second World War was over, right, in, in their documents that's been read. So on the one hand you're thinking, oh, you know, Yanks throwing their weight around and shit and shit, which is true, and... Um, but the other thing, there was a bigger player there. There was the Russians, and it was it was the Soviet Union, and oh, it's it, what's it like now? You know, you've got China cruising around, and I know a lot of younger kids think, oh, it'll be okay. And I've known people going, you don't really need an army, and you don't need. Well, I, I disagree. I don't believe you you need to. Um, be really aggressive, but it's like a bully anywhere, you know. You've got to have a way of defending yourselves because their ideology is different than ours. We don't understand it because we, you know, we basically want to have a 
basically brought up to believe fair go. Oh, totally. We're fortunate that we're not sharing our border with anybody mm. directly and or with someone that's hostile. We might have a different, like, North and South Korea or... or yeah, imagine. You know. Imagine. <laughs> if New South Wales wanted, had nukes and pointed them at us. Yeah. And we're saying we're all the same, you know, uh, race of, of, of yeah. nationality. But we, we believe in a different ideology and we've got nuclear weapons and you're targeted. Wake up in the morning and see how you feel, you know? Oh, look, I think, you know... Hey, what are you doing down there? Leave that alone. Sorry. Um, the, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's so fragile, the ecosystem in which we live, and yeah. I think we lose sight of that sometimes. Like, yeah. I, I, I know I don't want to sound like I've, I don't know anything, but I do know that sometimes I stand in a supermarket and I go... Explain this to someone a hundred years ago. Couldn't. You walk into a fucking place and anything that you can imagine you want to eat is here. Oh, yeah. They would have a fucking We've conniption. We've got it so good. You know, and, and you can get in your car. Get in your car. And you can drive two hours and be away from people or 10 hours or 15 or 20 hours and just go surfing. Yeah. Like, how good is that? And no one's going to stop you. You know, know my the interesting thing was <clears throat> when I led my sort of gypsy life, my dad's mates, when we'd go to different, you know, family function, whatever, they'd survived New Guinea and hand-to-hand combat and everything against the Japs and were, you know, a bit busted up from it still. But they said, I'm so glad that that we won that war so that you... Can, and your mates can jump in a car and just go surfing. And if, and can I come? Yeah. Like these were older guys back in the day, and they just loved the whole idea of packing your car up and going surfing. They just thought too much, right? Just That's just too much. That's just the best. And they were genuinely stoked, Yeah, you know? So, But it is, when you look at it from that point of view, if you've been in a fucking jungle... And Mozzie's trying to eat you alive, fucking, Horrible. you know, what do you call it, dysentery, you know, seeing your mates fucking die. Dingy fever. All that. Or get shot you more at. than the bullets most of the time. More of us. And and then you come back and you see your mates' kids with a surfboard. Yeah. And you go, fucking A. There he goes. There he goes, little Ellen. He's hitchhiking down bloody Geelong Road <laughs> with a little backpack on, you know. Um, they loved it. You know, all all the real hardcore dudes, they loved it. And um, so did I. And, look, I carried it on. I, I went out to the Pacific and I had um, I had a guitar in one hand, I had a surfboard in the other, a backpack on. I, I did write a song about it. This guy pulls up and he goes, where are you going? And I said, I'm walking around your beautiful island. And he goes, what are you fucking walking for, man? <laughs> and I said... Because all my life, I've wanted to walk around a tropical island, all right, and find some waves. And he goes, what are you doing there, man? And I said, I'm going to go surfing. He goes, we've got sharks out there. And I go, we'll keep fishing them. (laughs) So when I made it to his village, um, I I paddled out. And and I'm not joking, the whole village lined, lined the cliffs and were clapping. They'd never seen a guy go surfing before, and Polynesian people, 
surfing's in their blood. They were, they were in the shore break. They were riding bits of driftwood, just laying down with big smiles, the kids. Mm. To watch a guy actually stand up and go surfing, they were a bit freaked out by me. <laughs> as much as I was freaked out by them. White guy walking on the ocean. Yeah. Hey, skinny little white guy. <laughs> they come up to me and said, we've been taking bets on you, bro. I go, what do you mean? And I go, well, we have a saying out here, let time be your slave. He goes, but fuck, man, you're slower than a Samoan. <laughs> I just laughed at him. <laughs> so, yeah, I wasn't in any hurry. Oh, that's a compliment. Uh, it was. And they said, you know, in some ways you're more Samoan than the Samoans. And I said, well, it's it's my love of the ocean has taught me this. And, and it was surfing that took me to these places then, showed me different cultures. And I didn't stay in a surf camp or a hotel or anything. I just walked on people in the village, so you want to come and stay with us, you know, and then I'll buy them some food and they're hugging and we're all loving each other like family. It's just unbelievable stuff, you know. If I see mixed-up Samoan kids in, at the airport in Melbourne, I go, hey, talofa. And they go, they look at me. I go, hey, talofa lava. And they go, oh, and I go, I know you're a long way from your culture, aren't you? But I know your culture. I respect you, you know. How are you going? And then they go from these really angry-looking young kids to sort of opening up straight away because their 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 culture's built on the, the god Maui, so they're related, all the Hawaiians and all, all of them, Polynesian, Maoris, Cook Islanders. So Maui surfed in on a wave, standing up, stood on the beach in front of them, this is in their folklore, and said, stop eating human flesh. Maui was the dude, the god, that surfed in. Now, you know, there's a surfer. <laughs> He's a god. So what but That is... Sorry. A lot of people don't know that. No, I didn't know that either, that Maui was a surfer, surfed in and said, stop eating flesh. Yes. Human. Yes. Rode a wave in standing up. And he's in their books and everything. And now he lives in a volcano. Maui. And that's the same. They, I've in, got a in new a god. Yeah. <laughs> Maui stopped them eating each other. Because they said, lucky you come here now, boy, because we would have cooked you up and ate you. <laughs> you would have been on the menu. <laughs> Some tasty white flesh. <laughs> hey, yeah. Fucking, haven't had that for a while. And I was a bit dubious about them trying to fatten me up at the time. <laughs> they said to me, you're too skinny. You've got which, to get some puku. Which did... Did they did they kill and eat Cook? They did kill him, but the, I don't think they ate him. Oh, he got... Uh, well, he was unlucky. He did, he did get killed uh, on the beach. Um, I think it was the Sandwich Islands or something. And I think that was aptly known as Sandwich Islands. <laughs> you know, I went out to Vanuatu and one guy says to me, he goes, I tell you what, he goes, you've come at a good time. He said to me, you would have been very tasty once upon a time. I said, ooh. <laughs> good waves out there too. Oh, God. So, now I'm just going to drill back. I, I love that. Thank you for um, I Have a New God. Where does Huey come from? Predates all my knowledge, Huey. He's probably probably Greek. Yeah, okay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then you're heading into danger. But um, <laughs> so drilling back, mm. first job, Clem Bell. Yeah. Rod Brooks fixing dings. Yeah. And 
obviously they pull you back in. You never, you never really left that that zone. No, I, I did do other jobs at certain times, but um, it was interesting too because Dad had said to me, you know, you need to do an apprenticeship. Oh yeah. So I did. Yeah. I worked five years at Repco as an automotive technician, you know, specialising on um, compressed air on trucks and shit like that. Yeah. And then the day my time was up, the manager of of the the uh, workshop I worked in, he goes, Skeghead, you're going to be out of here, aren't you? And I went, <laughs> yeah, because I used to come to work with salt water. I'd bend over and salt water would come pouring out of my head because I used to, you know, surf before work and he used to allow me to become late if I'd work overtime. So the deal was I'll work any overtime you got as yep. long as you let me have a surf in the morning. Yep. But then I finished that and uh, he said, oh, I said, see you later. And Dad said, what are you going to do now? I said, I'm going to go and make surfboards. And he goes, good luck, have fun. So I was very lucky. And so I groveled and, you know, just did it. I went from, you know, I was a leading hand at Repco to uh, a, a street sweeping, fucking <laughs> ding fixing, dirty, clean the wax off that board, please. Um, <laughs> groveler. Yeah. And here I am, you and know, a later in life. I'm still doing it. Yeah. You know, I'm still cleaning the wax off board. I'm still sweeping the floors. I'm still patching up things. You know, and I can, you know, I learnt to shape and all that sort of stuff over the, over the years. But um. I love it. And and now you talk. I talk to some of the younger guys in there and they've done other jobs. And I actually interview them. I go, what are you doing this job for? They go, oh, I know. And I said, because you love surfing and you're fucking addicted, aren't you? You love surfboards too. Because otherwise you'd make more money in the bottle shop and get all this other stuff which, you know, making surfboards is the most inglorious or unglorious thing you can ever do. It's it's dirty, it stinks, it's dusty, you know, sanding and fixing, doing repairs. Would I say solitude to some degree? Like you spend a lot of time on your own? Well, you do, but in some factories there's no solitude and there's no mercy, you know, like... Uh, if you work in the bigger factories that are doing, like, Darren Hanley's and stuff like that, oh, yeah. and, you yeah. know, Morris's, when he bought his just surfboards here, 50, 60 boards a week and we're shipping them, putting them in boxes and shipping them to Japan. The most boards ever laminated in a day was, like, 14, you know, just lammed. And to me, the soul goes out of it a bit at that pace. But it never fully did for me because for some reason I must have got hit on the head by a surfboard but for me, surfboards were and still are sacred vessels that help human beings open their brain up to what life really is and the potential of it. And it gets lost in a crowd and it gets lost when it's crowded and guys drop in on you and everyone gets angry. But you got the choice. You can drive away from that if you want to and go and surf, you know, lesser waves or more uncrowded waves. You go and live in the desert if you want to. But that surfboard, man, that can take you places. You know, I uh, I wanted to show you before we sat down in the other room. I'll show you afterwards. I've still got the very first board that uh, mate of my uh, my dad's mate gave me. I used to walk to his house at Mount Martha. Uh, like, fuck, it used to take me an hour to get to his house. I'd take it from under his house. I'd yeah. go back and plead with mum to drive me to Point Leo. Yeah, and. 
It's a Paddy Morgan. Classic. And then years and years later, he gave it to Dad and said, I want you to give this to Johnny, and I've still got it. And it's just like, I, I feel I never let it go. I feel like that's like the soul of, you know, it is. my journey. It is. Yeah. Look, I look at surfboards I see really old. and Look, I, I have a lot of um, social interaction with people of all ages, you know. Like a lot of my friends are only 30, 35. We're the same tribe. And yeah. they're women these days, women, men. The thing that surprised me, there weren't many women surfing around here originally, or a few. They're pretty hardcore. There was always a couple in Point Lonsdale, a couple in Lawn, one or two around here. But now I talk to so many women who are frothing, absolute frothers, and if you get past the fact that, oh, you know, she's just a chick or something... And you take her seriously as a person that's fallen in love with the ocean and fallen in love with surfing. And I go get invited round. I'm lucky enough to go round and go, you know, have have little dinner chats with people. There's, you know, 20 people there, and I'm talking to these girls. They've got their boyfriends right there, and and we're talking about bottom lines, rails, lift, concave, edge in the tail. What the fins do? Why do you? position the fin what does nose lift do and just asking really pern and really super duper seriously into it yeah that to me is a revelation i find that i found it hard to believe at the start but now you know there's a couple of them become friends and get custom boards off me and stuff like that then they tell their friends and then they want to pick my mind you know i go to coffee with four girls and all they want to talk about is surfing yeah. Right to me, there were yeah. no girls in Torquay. Yeah. There was yeah. about two. I know, I know. The policeman's just... daughter, <laughs> Mad Max. <laughs> Even driving down here to the supermarket in the evening, and there's kids at all the bus stops, mm. trips me out. Mm. It's just like what? What? You know, there is just seemingly people everywhere. Yeah. But even to to your point, I, I think that the girls in the lineup bring a really nice energy. That they do, and look, being a male, I've played football down in the country, the whole thing where macho is macho, you know, I think the women bring a really good energy, and, and to me, the ones that are serious about it, I, I totally respect just like some of my best friends and younger guys that I see around here that are really, you know, taking it to the ocean. I, I totally... And you don't have to be the world's greatest surfer I think you've got to be the world's most in love with surfing and the ocean. That, to me, you know, a guy from Canada taught me this one day. I'd been surfing for years and I was pretty much at the top of my game and thinking I was pretty good in this whole thing. But I used to get grumpy and punch the deck of me bulb when I didn't surf well enough. I'm like, fucking you, fucking <laughs> Not happy type thing. Yeah. And I'm out at Janjuk one day. This guy's just taking off and going over the falls every wave and coming up going, you know, and I pat her up and I said, what the fuck, mate? And he goes, and he was from Canada and he goes, all my life I've wanted to go surfing. Today is my first day of surfing in Australia and I'm out here. And he goes, and I, I've, surf, I've, I've ridden the mountains all my life on snowboards and, and skiing. But this is my first day of surfing, and it's better than I ever thought it'd be, <laughs> and much fucking harder. <laughs> and I went, sat back down in myself, and went, "Fucking learn that one." Yeah, 
little Mr. Ego? Oh, I know. Because you've got to have an ego to be a good surfer. And it creeps in. You've got to learn to control it, though. Like, I, you've got to have an ego, and it's got to be healthy, or the ocean will kick your butt, right? And then you go out into a lineup, and, you know, some of my best friends were the best surfers, and they'll admit it now that they were pricks. And I say to them, now I'm going to get it back at you. I'm going to fucking poison you with some of my bad cooking. <laughs> Eat this if you can. <laughs> but you've got to be a bit of a, you know, just different. As you know, it's different being in a team, playing a, a team sport than it is dog eat dog, one man out there, especially in a crowd. You know, and it's always been that way to varying degrees, right? The more crowded it's got, the more lethal it's got, you know. And and um, but there's always been right from the start, super greedy people, mercilessly greedy people, and then people you just want to shoot with a shotgun the moment you see them pull up. <laughs> <laughs> Still to the day, yeah. I'm not him again. <laughs> Well, you know, talking about how life rolls and how funny that is, there used to be this guy, Bernie Vaughn, and I didn't know it at the time, but he's about six foot three. I used to think he was about five foot three because I was so pumped, you know, with adrenaline. But every time we'd surf, we'd just look at each other and hated each other, right? Yeah, yeah. We'd even link arms, paddling out, lock arms. And, yeah, fuck off. <laughs> you know, it was bad shit. And he lived down in Anglesey, and whenever I went there, he treated me like a foreigner. And so... Many years later, I don't know how many, but we were we we entered this yoga class, and I didn't know he was there. He didn't know I was there. But the lady was a lady from Torquay, Faye, and she goes, "Rouse, you and Bernie can work together." So she put me and Bernie together, and I looked at him, and I did first. I didn't realise how fucking big he'd been. I went, "Geez, you're a silly bars," and I'm thinking <laughs> he could have killed me. <laughs> But we're having to help each other in these stretches. And in the end, we both looked at each other, started laughing, and then gave high fives and hugs and went, what the fuck were we on? Right? All those years later. That is like a movie. Yeah. It was like, it was bizarre. <laughs> what was the movie where they put the two guys that hated each other in the same race car? Yeah. Do you remember that? I don't remember. No. It was like Will Farrell or something. Fuck, anyway. Yeah. But v- that's how life is, though, you know. Like, yeah. it's only competition in a funny way and then there's that that human uh, you know thing that we have that we spend the rest of our lives learning to sort of get in touch with and understand and that's that's a spirit inside everyone that you know unless you've nearly fully drowned and came back to tell the story or you've nearly died in a car accident or an operation or something there is this huge spirit inside us you know and First of all, you see that and you go, oh, yeah. And then you've got to at least acknowledge, well, if it's in me, it's in everyone. Mm. And if it's in everyone, I don't think I should be quite so narcissistic anymore, you know, maybe if I can. But as soon as someone cuts me off at the roundabout or drops in on me, I still want to strangle them. I just don't anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right? I don't I, I don't launch look. off the front of my board and get someone in a headlock and drag them to the bottom like a stone and try and drown them. No, I don't do any of that shit. I, what you're saying 100% resonates with me. But then you get to lowers. Of course. And it's yeah. like, oh, the spirit in you wants to fucking paddle up the inside of me. And what the fuck for? 
there is an order. Yeah. And then it just starts getting louder and louder, that voice. And next thing, and I'm fucking screaming at someone. Yeah. It's, hey, fucker. <laughs> Hey, fucker. You, know, <laughs> you, want to, you want to try that one, do yeah, you? Right. you like, I may as well just See, fucking go in on my guts. That's what's so in us. That's, that's, that's the red healer in all of us, right? In all of us. And you don't go out in the water to be violent, but there are people that can bring it out in you. So I've always been of the opinion that I didn't really, not happy with myself when I get angry with people. So I take myself away as much as possible from people or go out on bigger days, you know, and paddle inside further and take the more ridiculous waves where there's no one going to be. And that was one of the drivers that forced me to become better at it. You know, and I used to get guys... Oh, look, I can remember, you know, one day there was Brownie and Simon Buttonshaw and quite a few other, you know, local guys here at the time doing some pretty pretty fair surfing at Winky Pop and... and a, bunch of guys, about five or six of them paddled out, they could barely surf and they just started dropping in. And that was really like something, like a red flag to me. So I just paddled into the middle of them. I didn't know them. I sat up my board and go, you fucking idiots, what the fuck are you doing? And they go, what, fucking mate, you know? I said, first, has anyone told you that you don't do that? Do what? I said, these guys live here. They actually make surfboards here. This is their whole life. And you can barely surf, and you're dropping in on them. And I said, what's dropping in? I said, it's when you take a wave on the outside of someone. You've got to learn respect, guys, you know. Just fucking don't do it. I said, how do we get a wave? I said, go down there further on your own and stay away and get out of the way. You could still do that then. You couldn't do it now because it's just numbers. Well, I'd spend all day just... Well, you think my, to my point is like... Hailer. People are learning to surf in urban surf, and there's power to them. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not having yeah. a go at urban surf. I'm not having a go at anything. Yeah. But when they do that, and then they're like, "Oh, I can surf," and they come down, they come out. At, you know, you know, like you know what it was like at the back of the day. If you weren't good enough, you got sent back to mm. boobs, mm. sparrows. Mm. Juck, Torquay, Drano's. You'd surf all those waves until yep. you were good enough to surf the other waves unnoticed is yeah. how I looked at it. Yeah. And now these people, and I'm not having a go at them, they're beautiful human beings, but nonetheless there is a, still an e- ecosystem that happens. But you can tell because they can paddle, they can get up, but they don't actually know they're doing anything wrong by yeah. just paddling around you and sitting on the inside and just yeah. being like, Oh, it's just the merry-go-round. Like so the, what's the answer? Oh, there isn't one. <laughs> no, there has to be one. There's always an answer. There's, but we well, haven't it found in, it. Is it. Is it me and I just have to... Acceptance? Is acceptance the key to my problems today? Because I can't accept that these fucking things... This is Partially. Happening. Yeah, okay. But the other half is that they have to be educated. Mm. Right? <laughs> they have to... And how do we educate them? Do, do the people at... You know, they take you around and put little high-vis vests on you. Fuck, if you go for a bushwalk walk of a pram these days. Um, <laughs> they do. Right. Now we're going, you know, come along, children. <laughs> Don't stand on a microorganism, for God's sake. <laughs> so I reckon there needs to be education. You can't really educate someone when you're about to scream at them. <laughs> right? And if they don't know, they don't know. So... There's got to be, and I don't know how you do this personally, but 
let's start the conversation. There's got to be some education and respect has got to be the thing, you know, and just knowing the law and then if you want to break it, the unwritten law. If you want to break it, you cop the consequences, right? Drive through a red light, you'll probably have an accident. If you know, if no one told you they were red or green or they meant anything, you wouldn't know what you were doing. I think it's a bit like that. I don't know where it starts, but maybe at Urban Surf they have a little video you have to watch. It only has to go for five minutes. Because you're learning to surf here, especially the ones beginning, if you're learning to surf here, know that when you go to the open ocean, there is an unwritten code of conduct which gets broken all the time by people, but at least they've got knowledge. The knowledge, yeah. That, that'd be my idea. I think that's a great one. I was ready to just throw it out with the fucking baby in the bathwater and go, there is no answer, but that's a pretty good one. Well, but we all also, have to learn to drive on the road, but you still get crazy people going down the road. Yeah, and then the other one is, you know, I, I don't know. I, I suppose the only thing that ruffles my feathers is because I, when I, you know, tried to surf... Winky and Bells and Bird Rock when I was younger, I don't know how many times I got told to fuck off, get out of the water, threatened with violence, and I get it because mm. I was out of my element and I mm. shouldn't have been surfing those waves. Mm. I wasn't ready. And so you'd hear to that and go back and practice somewhere else and practice somewhere else. <laughs> but you can also learn off those guys then to, to use threats and violence, which I never did. I never threatened anyone in the water. And I never punched anyone in the water, ever. And I travelled the world and I got punched in the head once from behind when, the, when I wasn't looking. But apart from that, I had a pretty clean sheet yeah. and still would. I've yelled it. It's all right to yell at people. Like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, that's a bit of communication with passion. Yeah, that's right. For, yeah. I don't think punching people's lights out is a go. It's like... No, I respect. I, 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 I think what you're saying, I, I too have surfed I around the world. I to control myself a bit on a footy field. I never punched anyone on a football field, yeah. but I did. I was, went to Port Campbell at one stage and played. I lived there and we were, you know, first surfers in town, and they roped us into playing footy as well. Thought we better do it to give surfers at least a leg in here because it was these were days where it was only farmers and fishermen and no surfers. So I did. But there were guys. This guy was punching my mate in the head, Reeves, who lives out in the desert. He surfed, you know, pretty good and still goes to window every year. But he's he's one of those sort of classy type of footballer, but not really that rugged. This guy's punching him in the head. I've run from the other end of the ground, jumped into his back, rode him to the ground in a headlock and started strangling him. And an all-in brawl erupted around me. I didn't throw one punch, but I wouldn't let him go. And the ruckman grabbed me and went, fucking let him go or I'll kill you. And I go, if I let him go, he'll kill me. <laughs> and this big ruckman just went, oh. <laughs> Right. So I get that, that we've got this genie that can get out of the bottle. Yeah. You know, but I reckon there were other ways. Maybe headlocks. <laughs> Maybe we'll all learn a keto and we just do wrist locks. The camel clutch. Just get a guy wrist locked down onto his board and go, yeah. listen, mate, no, naughty. I don't know. Time out. Time out. Now. But, but you, I know what you mean. It's respect. If you're by yourself, you can go and show respect to everyone. You can get waves anywhere. 
maybe not like you know 50 people at pipe but most places if you're going yeah. exploring show some respect yeah. and, and you're not paddling out with yeah. a bunch of dudes yeah. you're good yeah i don't know anyway we, we digress but it is it is it is a a oh, fuck i mean i could just you could i suppose everybody's saying this in every aspect of life today because the world is swelling yeah it's swelling but the old saying it is what it is <laughs> you know yeah that is what it is i understood what it is what it is at the bottom of the ocean a few times going i don't really want to be here i want to be fucking out of here i don't want this shit you know well you know sorry mate this is the situation you're in deal with it and and that's not a word that they encourage you to use these days deal with it it's more like okay get some therapy but there's no therapy 20 feet down right the only therapy you're going to get is you so that's where i go back to it again i think the ocean's our greatest teacher you know look at it look what it is it's fucking amazing we're just little you know Sometimes you don't even feel like a human when you get so locked in with the ocean that you get into the rhythm with it and you're doing it all the time. And I've looked back on the land and gone, oh, that's the land. What are they all doing there, you know? And I felt that separation from that and the connection to the sea. A number of times I felt completely connected to the sea. So... I was probably on the menu for a great white or something at the time, you know, and didn't know it. <laughs> You're on the menu. Well, yeah, always. And that's part of the, uh, for me, the uh, the humbling aspect mm. of it. I'm so in love with this thing and I feel so vulnerable right now and I feel like life could be taken away from me at any moment, but yeah. I'm still fucking here. Yeah. You know, I've been eyeballed by great whites down the coast just on sunset. At Gibson Steps, everyone had gone. It was pink sky going into grey, and then I just the hackles went up on my back all over me. So I laid up on my board, put my arms and legs up. Wait, and I you just knew went, before you saw? I just felt something. I felt my whole body just said, "Danger, danger." And I thought I always listened to that. Yeah. And then I looked over, and probably about eight feet away, there was this big black eye, like a black billiard ball just staring at me not even moving and I just went fuck mummy 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 <laughs> I just I just froze and prayed and said all you know all sorts of things all my big macho disappeared and then um of course no waves come it was only a small night and I finally got a little wave in and it stopped about 15 feet from the shore there was oh, a channel fuck and that water was black. Mm. And I went, this is where I get eaten. So I started to paddle really slow and then I lost it. I went, fuck <laughs> it. Just lost it. Hell for leather for the beach. Threw myself on the sand. Flagellated the sand. Just about ate it, you know. And went, I don't care who's watching. But no one was. <laughs> you know, and I just went, that's probably one of the scariest moments in my life. I, I, yeah, I was just having a look. That is what freaks me out the hardest. Did you, did you hear the story of Swiv's kid down down there not that long ago? Uh, and he was on a clubby board in the channel watching really big. And he was with his mate. And so they were just told to stay in the channel watch. 
and they were getting pulled out a little bit so they turned to put a little bit more distance between the wave and them mm. and as he turned he looked back and saw uh, how did this go yeah it came up like you just said and just put its head out of the water like a crocodile mm. and just looked mm. at him mm. and you wouldn't think on a big day like that right but and that's what i love to believe that yeah. <laughs> i love to believe that because they are the masters <laughs> they can go anywhere, anytime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I like to think, oh, they won't go near big breaking waves. Oh, too much white water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and puny little humans are floating around in it. And he's just having a look, what the fuck is this thing? Will I have a little taste bite or not? So it, the, the, the second-hand story, well, no, he was there and Swift told me. that It came up, or he told me and Swift was there, I can't remember, it was in the car park, but... It went back down like a crocodile, like like you said, not moving, not thrashing, yeah, just no, like... No, yeah, that's what I saw too. It just stopped and was just eyeballing me. Hello. I went, oh. Oh, that's fucked. Oh, yeah, well, that's what they are. They are full on. I mean, a, a great white got chomped by uh, some killer whales over in South Australia a while back. It was about a year or two ago. And they didn't see any great whites anywhere over there for about three weeks. Well, who tells each other? We think we know things. So the killer whales have chomped one. So all the guys that do the diving in the cages and the whole thing all around Lincoln and the whole area said, none, gone, disappeared for three weeks. Now, okay, we don't know nothing about them. I love the fact that what I have heard is they actually have a global social structure and there is a hierarchy amongst them. Yeah. And they're super fucking smart. Mm. And yet everyone forever would be like, no, there's a solitude creature, a mindless hunter killer. Mm. But no, they're yeah. like intercontinental social beings. Yeah, with great big teeth. <laughs> <laughs> that digest legs in a second. <laughs> <laughs> They're not vegan. <laughs> now, vegan sharks appeared. I could get Fuck up yes. close and cuddly with them. <laughs> Sorry. Some people, you know, Fuck twist it. them upside down and kiss them and they can do that. I've seen the ugly side. I've been stalked. Oh, fuck me drunk. I, I just, I hate thinking about it. But here's sort of semi, you know... Backed off and calm. The place where that freaks me out still to this day is the desert in South Australia, and that's anywhere past you know the Victorian border. Portland it starts because um, you know cactus that was full of great whites. We we paddled out a few times, and it's probably one of the only places I've never peed in my wetsuit, right? Ever because I just can't pee in my wetsuit over there, and you see them. And you don't think it's going to happen and then you hear another story of a person getting eaten half and down at Alliston and all sorts of things, yeah, you know. Yeah. And there was a guy from WA back in the day, his nickname was Sharkbait because a couple of times he'd had brushes with him and it's cut, cut he, the skin had cut him, right? Well, Sharkbait from, from WA, and this is Fair Dingham, he got taken in the end, you know. For 10 years, everyone joked about Sharkbait and then... Shark bait got eaten, like far out. That's in in South. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
if you'll notice that the the locals are a little wilder over there. Yeah. Their weed is a lot stronger. <laughs> and I think it's it's they're self-medicating so they can actually tell themselves it's okay every time they paddle out. Because, man, that's headquarters. That is headquarters. And I reckon they aptly named that whole area the Great Australian Bite. You know? They really did. That's fucking hell. Do you think of that by yourself? <laughs> yeah. no, I know, but I, it's, I never actually drew that correlation, the Great Australian Bite. And I've heard jokes around it, like, have you seen that Chopper one, where Chopper's doing the weather? And he goes... Eh. No. Yeah, anyway. But I, I love I, Sharknado. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to watch it with my eight-year-old daughter. It was her favourite movie. But she used to turn around at me and go, I am not going in the ocean, though, Dad. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Jaws fucked me up as a kid. It just really oh, did. I love Jaws. That's one of my favourite movies. I watch it all the time. I watch it on repeat. You know, I say, I'm watching Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> That's just so good, especially when it gets on the boat and it, it tilts the boat and he goes sliding down into its mouth and it just <laughs> chomps him whole and disappears. And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've so far in my life escaped that so far. Do you remember the one uh, I used to see it as a kid? It was about a killer whale that stalked a boat because, or stalked a captain, more the point than the boat. Because was that he, Willie goes feral. So, yeah, <laughs> Willie goes feral because he killed the mum or something, or they yeah. killed the, yeah. the kid. I don't remember, but it was fucking full tilt. It ended up in the ice. This orca stalked this guy till it got him. Mm. Anyway. Fucking hell. Yeah, yeah. So that's what we get. Look, a lot of people go into the the pool. Actually, don't... Un- Maybe we should talk like this. <laughs> or they, do they want real-life shark horror stories? I can give them a few more, and we can sit down there and go, do you want to go out there now? Yeah. <laughs> go and sit out there. Well, you might have put the brakes on my Easter cactus trip. Well... It is what it is, you know. Yeah. It is what it is, and it is shark headquarters. And, and look, like, it still puts fear into me when I think about it, you know. Um, but I've got to write a country and western song about that, the world out there. Like, the sharks will eat you. Seals always looking around. They're so smart. Whenever you swim, you're always looking down. You know, you're looking down and you're looking around. That's just going for a swim. You don't even think about going... Like, going to you know, Kakadu and thinking you're going to not swim with crocodiles. Well, you are going to swim with crocodiles. So you're swimming with sharks. And then the locust plagues are as thick you can't see the sky. The mice plagues are so thick they're like a carpet when you drive down the road, like that solid. And they used to get into, we'd have to buy like uh, tin lockers to keep our food in. And you'd be sleeping in your sleeping bag and they'd eat their way into the tent and then eat their way into your bloody sleeping bag. The place, that's outback feral Australia. Not to mes- mention, you know, desert taipans and shit. Have you, um, there's a book called In, in Sunburnt Country. Uh, Bryce, no, not Bryce. Um, oh, fuck is his name. It's called A Sunburnt Country and it's an uh, English author. He's really well known. So the mm. name just evades me because I'm on the spot. But I learnt more about Australia from... I listened to it. I did cheat. 
but from listening to that book than I did ever in any Australian history class. It was so well done. Yeah. And just from an outsider's point of view, pointing out all these things, going all the way back to, you know, dream time mm. and, and the anomalies on this land in which we live oh, yeah. that we just don't even no. get told or think about. No. It's, it's a really, really good. I lived in a shack for a few years up Jarosite Road out the back of Bells and it had no electricity had a tank water. I, to have a shit, I used to have to uh, I had to dig a hole in the ground and throw lime in it. So if it was raining, I was in trouble. So I lived like that for a few years. And if I had a shower, it was like I had, I had a gas stove. I used to cook on the gas stove, boil up a pot of water, ladle it over me, and then go into the Torquay pub to try and meet a girl. Yes. But I probably looked like a fucking... I don't know what I looked like. Yes. I don't know what I smelt like either. But um, things Getting I saw out up. there... <laughs> Some amazing things, like um, it got to the stage where uh, I'd lived there for that long and I used to sit there and play my guitar and then walk down to Bells and stuff like that, go surfing. I was pretty hipped out. Um, but I used to get wild woods, became friends and land on my fingers, you know, like out in the middle of the bush. And I, and I just, that happened because I actually believe that if you calm right down, it, it should be should be able to happen, and it does happen. But amazing things like I used to see that really blew me away were um, one night around Christmas time, under the shack, it was up on stilts off the ground. I don't know how many, but, you know, 500, maybe 1,000 echidnas. They all gathered because I was, I was laying down nearly asleep and, you know, it was about midnight and I heard this rustling going on. What the fuck's this rustling? So I went outside with a torch and I'm not joking. Thousands of echidnas, hundreds anyway, all doing this little circular dance un- under the shack I was in. It wasn't anything about me. It was just that this was the meeting of the echidnas that no one had told me about. Now, who knows that? Who knows that? I don't know that, but now I know it. I've seen it. I've told it to my kids and they've gone, you sure you weren't taking drugs? I'm I'm sure I was taking drugs, but I'm sure I know what I've seen too. You know, like, and then at other times of the year there would be, like you see wattle birds hanging around in twos and threes and chasing each other around. Well, in the bush at the back of Bells there, there's a wattle tree week where... Hundreds and hundreds of of wattle birds all gather and it's just raucous. It's like a football match and they're just flying around in huge flocks. Like, well, who's ever seen that? That's been going on long before, you know, we came along. Um, that That's just stuff that is, you know, that I was lucky enough to see because I was out there just, you know, basically... Getting down. Yeah, yeah. Get- and I reckon everybody in their life, at least once, should go and get down. You don't have to be a superhero to do it. You just need to do it because I think you find things out about life and about yourself and your connection. You know, you go through a whole, you know, I didn't have uh, electricity, so I didn't have any tally or anything like that and just... Yeah, just used to listen to the wind and the birds and used to light a fire at night and um, pretty good way of getting the beginnings of finding yourself. And I met a... Um, I used to play a bit of music 
at the Port Ferry Folk Festival and um, I met an Aboriginal elder from up in Arnhem Land and we got talking, had a few beers and then I told him about what was happening down there and living down there and he goes, no, you've been inducted into a tribe and I said, well, I haven't been inducted into a tribe actually and he goes, no, so we argued and argued and argued and just refused to believe me. He goes, he said, well, how can a white man know what you know, you know if you haven't been told? And I go, well, how the fuck do you know? And he goes, because, you know, we've got the knowledge. And I said, but you don't own the knowledge. He goes, well, I know that and now you know that. And I just said, yeah, because it doesn't worry about the colour of your skin as long as you're in the right frame of mind and you're being honest about it and then you get shown things right and then he still really didn't want to believe me but in the end he didn't and he just laughed and we drank a bit of beer together and cracked jokes and he said you know and he said this i don't know if i should say it but i'm gonna say it he said not to say it but i'll say it he said 99 percent of my people don't know what we've just talked about either you know but you do and you're a white fella. And I go, well, isn't it what we just said? You don't own it. I don't own it. It is. It is the great spirit. So come on. And he goes, yeah, okay. So for all people out there, get all the crap off you and just walk on this earth while you're alive. There's no separation. There's no separation. None. None. Yeah, and I love what you just said because, like, and you obviously you've taken this ethos way back because going back to you walked around in, where it was in the uh, Polynesian area, yeah. and and walking and slow, going slow, going and slow, part of your... and them laughing at me, yeah, and their way is slow, and, and it's uh, like I love it. The one thing that you were saying about the echidnas and everything like that, I remember I've seen something similar, and every time I tell people, they're like. I'll tell you. So I was in, I was working for my stepdad. Used to have a property in New South Wales, middle of nowhere. And anyway, I was in between a rock and a hard place. And he offered me three months' work up there one time. And there was an old farmhouse on a creek, and there was heaps of sparrows. And I was living in there by myself. And one afternoon, I was home doing the dishes, and I was looking out the kitchen window, and all the sparrows were you know they were always flying around. Fucking there was. A circle of them on the lawn and they were all jumping around in a circle and in the middle of the circle was one upside down with its feet in the air mm. and i was like oh fuck me motherfucker it's dead and they're all like jumping around having a little like what the fuck and all of a sudden that one in the middle jumped up jumped up flew like three meters and did it again and they all moved and went around it again and yeah. were hopping around it it's like the dance like and it was, I was like, they're fucking playing, and he's playing dead. And I was just That's like... part of their, their, their sacred dances, right? That's what that is. That's where, you know, people, Indigenous people, copy dances and do them all around the world. They see... It's probably the dance of the dead sparrow. I don't know what it means <laughs> to sparrows, but it means something to them. You know, it's, it's their body language. And there's a lot more going on there than we'll ever know. Yeah, it blew my mind. You know, another thing I wanted to say was the the difference between 
So even just talking now and then, picture this. A party. In, at Christmas time, every surfboard factory and anything to do with surfing all got together for one party at the one place. It didn't go to separate places. And to get people in, Brian Singer, Singding and Clemmy, they were driving around in Clemmy's utes, picking up kids on the sidewalk who were going shopping down here. Get in. So you loads of kids are going out there and partying. They've got bands, really good bands, um, Shadow Facts and stuff like that playing. They've got booze galore. They've got the mums that are making the board shorts for Quicksilver and the mums that are making the wetsuits and T-shirts for Rip Cool. They're dead straight ladies, you know, their sons. God knows what their sons were doing. <laughs> but then naughty little Morris arrives <laughs> with a jar full of hash oil. Pops it into the... Um, the punch. Next thing you know, next thing <laughs> I don't know is that there were mums and dads crawling on their hands and knees <laughs> along the barbed wire fence and it was held about up on the Bells Boulevard out there in the hills in a farmhouse type thing in the day. And then coming back to town later, there are people wandering all over the fucking highway <laughs> back to Torquay. There were people bouncing off brick walls at the Torquay Hotel. It was just phenomenal. That was like, that was your average sort of party. And it was sort of like, if you were, it came out of the thing that if you surfed, you were part of the tribe. Or if you were. Even if you didn't surf and you made board short talk, you're still part of the tribe because we were looked down upon as, um, and quite rightfully so when you think about it, seaweed, skeghead, feral. It didn't matter. I, I knew guys who were lawyers and doctors and all sorts of things that surfed. They were still looked down upon like that, right? But, wow, did we have some parties, you know? Like... You would just hear, oh, who rolled his car? Yeah, yeah. Wayne was always rolling his car going back to Lawn, you know, out at Urquhart somewhere. Yeah, yeah, he rolled it out at Urquhart's, you know, like, and it didn't sort of blow you away. Went, oh, no, we shouldn't have driven, you know. And he shouldn't have, but he did. And and everyone did, but it was an amazing town then. I don't want to say, I'm not, yeah, I worked at the Talkie Bottle Shop for ages, mm. long time ago, and who you were just talking about came through one night. And I was just like, holy fuck. How are you driving? Oh, like, I was like, it's fucking Wayne Lynch. Yeah. Well, he told me he doesn't drink anymore and he's, he's lecturing me. If you're ever going to hear this, Wayne, stay off it. It's evil. It was a long time ago if you ever hear this, Wayne. Uh, you know, I don't think- but you'll find that in a lot of people. People that really get involved with the ocean, that really take it to the limit, once the salt gets in you, like sailors become the same way, once that salty ocean gets in your veins, one drink goes to your head. And they, and for some reason, it's not about their childhood or anything like that. It's about this, I reckon, when you're, in, when you're way open, the adrenaline injectors in, in yourself... It, it's a fair bit to take back, you know. So you have one drink and you, you're, you're an adrenaline junkie, so maybe you just want to keep going, you know. Well, I haven't had a drink for 12 years. 
You're a good boy. For that reason. Yeah, well, you're one. <laughs> because I can't turn it off. No. Like so you're an adrenaline junkie deep down. In, you, you got The ocean's got hold of you. It's in your blood. It got to the stage I understand where you were. I stopped drinking and then people used to give me stubbies and at parties and go, come on. So I used to have a sip like that when they weren't looking, tip it on the ground and then evilly say to them, come on, give me another one. <laughs> tip it straight on the grass outside in the fire, by a fire at night, right? But that's a connection with alcohol and, and all drugs because... I reckon you, you don't need it. Maybe a glass of wine's all right if you can stop there. I wish I could. Mm. I think it's great. If you can do that, fucking power to you. Well, I've got power. I can stop now. Yeah. But that's after getting my gut tripped out and sewed back up from abuse, you know, like I was the same. I've driven drunk. Shouldn't have. It's wonder I didn't kill myself and someone else, and it's just fucking loony. But I've worked out what causes it to a degree. It's usually... It's, there must be an adrenal gland that clicks. And once you've opened it, once more, you know, it's like, ha, 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 let's go. I think that's, yeah, keep it for the sea. Yeah. Yeah, and I, look, you know, fuck, it's funny. Like, I thought everyone drank how I drank. And then when I stopped and I was dead determined, determined not to not go out and be part of a social, you know, try and be yeah. social still. Uh, and I'd look at people how they were drinking and I'd be looking at them going, still drinking that same beer, yeah. still drinking that same beer. In yeah. my head, I'm like, I would have had three. <laughs> so you're lucky that you actually acknowledged who you are because that's probably saved your life. Oh, definitely. Yeah, anyone that yeah. my family yeah. are like, you'd and, be and dead. And friends because yeah. she could become... Most people that get too drunk become a bit obnoxious anyway, one way or another. Sooner or later, sooner or later, the, the little demon wants to get out and have a little chat to people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fun for a while, you know. I stopped at 33 and 20s, no drama. Yeah. It was just good times. Yeah. You know, you'd, I did crash a fair few cars and, like, you're very lucky that I didn't hurt myself or anyone else. Yeah. But coming to the 30s, other people start to go pull it back, whatever, and when you can't stop, I could not stop that. Yeah. And I was going to put me in an early grave. Yeah, it was. You, you know, the other thing, when I, you know, we used to live in this farmhouse up at Janjuk and there were just houses down towards the golf course, but there were all the other rest were just fields and cows grazing. We lived in this old farmhouse, about six or eight of us. We used to... You know, party on there nearly every night of the week. We could see the ocean the whole time. Every surfer in town, if they want to have a beer, drop in. And then we got into jamming. So music's been a huge part of your life. Yeah. yeah. And and out of that, we played this first gig and, and Quicksilver got involved and they said, we'll do your jackets because we said, hey, we've got a gig at the pub because people used to just come up there and we'd just sit around at parties and just make this horrible noise, really loud, obnoxious, drunken fun. So we got a gig at the Torquay Hotel and the, the, the publican foolishly gave us the door because we knew everyone in town. So it was wall-to-wall people. But Quicksilver made us jackets across the creek tour. And that was in the year of, you know, when they had the, the um, stars on the front, you yeah, know, yeah, and yeah. that shot of the Valiant. and Yeah, you can't rock and roll. Mm, you've can't, yeah, that was that. So they made jackets for us. But we used to go to places and because 
we were from Torquay, we went to say played in Phillip Island and just before we'd set up the PA and everything, you know, and ready to play and then they'd hold up these eggs and rotten tomatoes and stuff, they're waiting for you, <laughs> boys, because you're from fucking West Coast. It wasn't Torquay, the West Coast. So we went upstairs and freaked out, you know, like, what are we going to do? And then we said, we're going to fight them. We're going to punch the shit out of them. If they fucking throw that shit, I'm grabbing the mic stand, you know. <laughs> we were like that. And all right, what we, we planned attack. The hardest and fastest songs we usually did last, so we went out and did the hardest and fastest songs first. Won them over, they put the stuff away, and then the publican shut the pub afterwards. About one, and then we were still there at sunrise, you know, drinking. And then, then the local guys are saying, Come on, let's go! Cats is on, you know, and we're going, Oh, yeah. So, surfing and music, I was making boards, playing music. It was feral, like disgusting. Shouldn't have done it, right? It's a wonder I'm not well and truly dead 10 times over because, um, you know, if you can't rock and roll, don't fucking come. Um, so we had to learn to play rock and roll, and um. It was funny in that era because, uh, you know, a whole bunch of people here actually played some pretty good rock and roll. And so Easter would would come up and we were playing in the uh, at the Bell's presentation night in the Torquay Hotel once and um, these couple of guys from Ballarat had come up and hassled me and Skelly and said, oh, I'll fucking play some fucking gold to you. <laughs> and Skelly said, oh, fuck off, mate, you know. And then the guy's like, fucking start to throw beer at us. So Sean Thompson at the time, I think he won, you know, that year. He's dressed him immaculately with a shirt and tie and a jacket. Him and his brother Mike Thompson, both South Africans, came up and said, oh, come on, chaps, leave them alone. You know, like that. <laughs> And they said, how does it get fuck sound? <laughs> right, I'm not joking. Within a second, Sean and his brother or cousin, I don't know which one he is, Mike, <clears throat> had head-butted these guys and dropped them, dropped them, out cold. And then Sean leaned over and goes, sorry about that, chaps, would you like another pot? <laughs> or should we get you a jug? <laughs> So fucking, uh, uh, you know, right? Yeah. Looking after it's the family again. You know, the family yeah. talking in those days. You went to a party because it was pre sort of. It was just starting. Pro surfing was just starting. But parties in the backyard at Torquay on a Saturday night around Easter would be, you know, you'd have ten of wines and guys from France everywhere. Boards would be out on the backyard. Half the locals would be there inside sort of trying to meet the famous people, but out the back, the hardcore loonies would be feeling each other's rails up and talking bottom lines. What would you write at sunset? Yeah, where at Ulu's, I'd drop the fucking rocker here. The bells have found it's a bit stiff, and there was a guy here that no-one talks about a lot. His name's Donny Orcroft. Donny. Donny, I had some of the best surfers and shapers in the world in the backyard looking at his guns that he made for Big Bells and down the coast saying that they thought he was the best shaper outside of Hawaii they'd ever seen, that they wanted him to come to Hawaii and shape guns for them at sunset. And they were deadly serious. And for some reason he just drifts through historically and his boards went amazingly. Like I, I took... A couple of boards to window when I first went there and they were all wrong and I won't say who made them, that's just not on. But 
Donnie was there and he lent me a 7.3 pintail single fin he had and it was just like saved my life, you know. I was home, happy, riding Ulu's again, you know. And and that was the era of Lopez. He used to go to uh, Ulu's. Him and one of the greatest things I've ever seen was Lopez and Peter McCabe from Newcastle who died of cancer. He was a shaper from Newcastle. Brilliant goofy, both goofies. They paddled out, started putting on such a good exhibition that we actually went in. There was only about eight or nine people at Ulu's in those days. But we watched them ride till sundown and the two of them rode every wave together and they just did crossovers, both getting tubed together. Like it was just a work of just like, it was like classical music. I couldn't work it out. How could you be that good and that confident with each other? And like on their own, like Lopez would take every wave he'd ever seen. He was quite greedy. I heard. But with Peter McCabe, him, they just rode together. It was just one of the, still one of the most amazing things I can still remember. Did Peter McCabe have that bear claw? Was that a symbol yeah, of it? Yeah, and, and he used to ride really deep channel bottom um, single fins shaped shaped in Newcastle. Yeah. Goofy foot. Brilliant surfer. Brilliant surfer. In uh, Luckily, I've seen him in the best waves, like six to eight foot Ulus, and just, you know, he was a perfect surfer. There um, was a guy when I was in Margaret River in 95 called Paul Rooney from Newcastle who was mm. living over in the West and he, I'm pretty sure, was riding McCabe surfboards. Yeah. They had a bare claw. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah. Mm. He was a really good surfer as well. Yeah, Newcastle's renowned, isn't it? Yeah. You go up there and have a surf and everybody can surf. They don't need a pool. They don't need a pool. Nicky Wood? <laughs> Nicky Wood, brilliant. Yeah. But I've seen him get torched down here like bad influence from older guys who gave him too much to drink and too much to smoke and encouraged him to do it when he was about 15. You know, surfing, young Gromo, similar sort of thing happened with Sean Brooks. Yeah. I used to try and talk Sean down, you know, like, no, don't, don't stop it. But he had that gene in him too that, Brilliant surfer, brilliant big wave surfer, like took took two mile apart, like <laughs> breathtaking, as good as anyone ever. And um, but that adrenaline valve that opens once he had a beer, he was gone, you know. And um, and that was a pity because um, and you know how older guys can be a bit naughty and encourage younger blokes, come on, have another one, don't be weak, you know. Um, that was the down, downfall of him too, unfortunately. It, I was actually talking to my girlfriend about this last night, you know, because I, I look back at, at my own trajectory through booze and drugs mm. and just wish that I, I hadn't have been. Like my, my hero, absolute fucking person I looked up to the most when I was 16 was Jim Morrison, you know, and how he... Behaved, you know, like, and it's just oh, like, yeah. that's where I want to fucking <laughs> Thank be, Thank God right? you got off the booze, mate. <laughs> you know what I mean? And oh, it's yeah. just like... Yeah, I know. And so, but, like, it's when you say the older guys and you go, well, people in their went at 25, maybe influencing people in their late teens, early teens, you're still not growing up at 25. Me at 25, I had fucking no idea. No. None. None. Like, at 50, 55, <laughs> my kids were saying to me, Dad, not everyone can be as immature as you at your age, you know. 
And I'd go, what? But you have to grow up, but I can't. I'm not, I'm not growing up at all, really. I'm still... I'll go to the grave like a, a grom. I still froth on other... Like, I don't, I don't surf stand-up boards anymore because my body's a bit fucked, but I paddle around. I, I made myself a fibreglass one. And I go out and watch young guys surf. And I'm watching what they're doing from the angle and, you know, duck diving under waves and stuff and hooting because I just love... The sea peeling, people getting their little rails in and slashing it and taking it to the limit. I just, I love that. That'll be my last memory when I'm taking my last breath. You know, I feel so blessed that I found it and it found me. And it's rewarded me with um, a a self-belief system. You know, I've had to put a few of the, um, you know, my alcoholic tendencies aside as well. But if you're lucky or... I think it's just a matter of luck. You're lucky, I'm lucky. We're still here. Friends that didn't make it. You know, and I could name... I could name a table load of people that are brilliantly talented that took everything to extremes until one day they didn't, they were either dead or learnt to pull themselves back because they... Probably had to, right? But it's it's not that easy. No, well, you got a, 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 a fair amount of luck, or something looking yeah, down, yeah, or maybe, who the yeah. fuck knows? I don't know. You know, does someone know. have a finger on you at times? I don't know. I've been I've been chatted to at the bottom of the ocean, and I know that. Um, and I keep referring back to that because that changed my life. But I. I, I nearly got murdered at Two Mile. That's how I'll describe it. Murder. It was murder. <laughs> that wasn't nice. <laughs> that was murder. <laughs> Someone had me in a dungeon. They had me in a dungeon. They were torturing me and playing with me as if I didn't matter to myself. <laughs> and obviously I don't. And you were on the edge. You were on the edge. I was edge. the end. I was a little rag doll, a little puppet, you know. But... It took me years to get over that in more ways than one because I, I used to drink a fair bit after it because I was in defiance of what I'd felt and seen, you know, like, fucking, I'm not going to lie down, I'm going to just keep surging on, you know. Um, and we keep coming back to that because I think that's the biggest danger for surfers when they get the adrenal gland open. You know, I really do. I think that's the one that we really got to watch it and, and and do this thing of, like, if I had my time over again, I, I would change a couple of things and one would be I definitely wouldn't drink as much and I wouldn't take as much in the way of illicit substances and I would train harder than I did to go surfing. As it was, I used to go into Geelong and swim Cadinia Park laps and and instead of just swimming laps, I would try not to l- use my legs and try and imagine I'm paddling out, I'm now taking a wave. I've made that, I'm paddling out through the sets, now I'm pacing myself out the back, stop. I used to do that and that saved my life because, you know, and then I used to run, I used to do martial arts and the funniest thing I've ever done with Kimbo Potter from Watercooled who lives in WA now, is Brad Potter's brother. Um, we did jazz ballet. 
We went in Geelong, didn't tell anyone. You're ahead of your time. We were doing jazz ballet. Because you know they do that for footy players and shit now. <laughs> we, we thought we needed to learn balance and flexibility. And I said, I'll do it if you do it. I said, I'll do it if you <laughs> So we went, and the lady in there was teaching said, my class improved 50% the moment you guys arrived. The girls just stepped it right up. Because we're doing little plies and everything. And I tell you, it did help. I can still sort of stand on one leg and put a sock on in the morning. Right? <laughs> and I practice. Have you still got that balance, mate? I still do it as a matter of fact, you know, which is pretty silly, really. I love it. So you, you were secretly training. Yeah. Everything I did, I went running, yeah. did martial arts, yeah. did yoga, swimming, in between, and I say to people now, "What are you doing?" They go, "Well, bugger on it." I say, "You're doing nothing. You got to. You can't just surf. You don't oh, well, need you someone can... there standing there screaming for you to do this either. Like, come and join the club. Fucking, we'll do it because you need to do it because you want to do it because you want to get the most out of yourself for for surfing, right? There's no use paddling out going, oh, "I'm so unfit." I feel that way now. I'm nearly seventy. I'm a bit stuffed, but. I think if I had my time over again, I would be even more full-on than I ever was. And I used to get drunk in... I've been at parties up here in Grandview Road mm-hmm. and ran to the other side of where Bird Rock is, and that was nothing. Drink about five pots of water before I left, piss halfway along Spring Creek and shit, and run all the way home so that I could surf in the morning and wake up and feel half okay. Used to do that. Because I used to think you got to be on it, man. You got to be on it. You got to. That's the fear of of how how bad the ocean can be to you. You don't know if you're going to wake up and get caught inside. And I've seen a small day get a person with a leg rope wrapped around their neck and nearly strangle them. And you just never know. No, yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I remember a couple of times racing my brother back home to Jack on foot after the pub and mm. shut. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't know if that was because you couldn't get a cab or we didn't have a car at the time, but great shit. Yeah, yeah, you're mad. Yeah, um, so you should. And we should have look Saturday night should be full of young <laughs> guys and gals running down the the surf coast highway on the way home, pissed, drinking water, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just so they can get up and go surfing in the morning. Yeah. Oh God, too good. Um, now, going. I just want to touch on the, the music because everybody tells me how much of an amazing musician you are. Well, compared to some, I'm not. But look, music, the ocean and music, surfing, surfboards—they're inseparable. Now that I don't surf as much, music to me is like going surfing. And when I play music, I feel like I'm floating through that thing. And and I've had guys that that don't surf much and don't play a, a gig somewhere and they've said to me, that's a West Coast Victoria sound. Well, I go, well, is it? Well, I don't know what the West Coast of Victoria sound is. And I think Scully, Mark Skelton, a friend of mine, summed it up. He goes, look, we were just surfers that played played a bit of music. right?" And having said that, though... Um, we did, like, supports for hunters and collectors and everything, playing our own original stuff, and we pretty much played original music all over the place and done, you know, got offered to do Midnight Oil at um, at uh, the um, 
my music bowl and all this sort of shit. She didn't do it because the, the drummer's girlfriend was having a birthday. Like, things like that got in the way of what we were doing. But it hasn't got in the way. Scally's still the same. I ring him up and talk twice a week, and he's living up near Yamba. Yeah. Is he enjoying the move? Yeah. He's living, you know, about half a K from, from Wayne Lynch, and they're old mates. But Skelly tells me every day he's in there writing and playing and driven. I'm the same. I, I have to play three or four hours a day or I'm not getting a fix, you know. Yeah, wow, okay. He had that great sound. Have you got, he's got that yeah. sound room under his house. Yeah, well, he's got, got it up there now. So, and then I, I've written a whole lot of songs inspired by the ocean and that feeling that a surfer feels, you know, like what's... um. Just that feeling of, uh, you know, I talked about before when you when you're screaming out for more, and you look towards the shore, and you're not a part of the human race. You just don't feel a part of the human race sometimes. You know when you've just pulled out of a wave, and they say that old feeling. Only a surfer knows the feeling, and it might be stormy and rainy and whatever, and you're pulled out of a wave. Well, there's music going along in my head then and it's still going along now and I was lying in hospital had my chest ripped open last year and you know they did bypass surgery and all that shit and you can be pretty sick well the funniest thing I had (laughs) when I came into um, this is funny (laughs) some people don't handle the drugs that they give you because they're hallucinogenic really well We'll back it up. They they give you hallucinogenic chunks. They have side effects, yeah. Ah. Post-op. Yeah. It's like they, yeah. And you have ladies or men. The most common one was, oh, there's a giant spider. Or, wow, there's a six-foot cockroach going up the wall, you know. Well, you know what I I was dreaming when I woke up and I said, send me back to sleep, please. (laughs) I dreamt I was standing in in Gilbert Street, Torquay, leaning against McCartney's real estate window, and this grey and white cloud came over, like a mist, came over the top of Bells and over the top of Janjuk and floated down into Torquay. And at the end of Gilbert Street, where the post office is, it formed into a 50-foot-high, smoke-made, black, white and grey Hawaiian kahuna. And it was walking down the street and people were screaming and running everywhere. And I just stood there and went, wow, how cool. A 50-foot kahuna in Gilbert Street. Wow, where have you been? <laughs> All my life. And then they woke me up and I went, what are you doing waking me up? But uh, that's, that's the silly mind I've got, you know. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> it was pretty good. And I just said, can I have some more of that stuff? And they went, you don't need any. <laughs> You know, and so when you're in a situation like that, the two things I decided I wanted to do, well, the one thing I wanted to decide to do was live my life to the fullest. You know, not that I didn't realise that you have to do that from all my hold downs because that's affected my my mind. But I wanted to shape the best boards I've ever shaped in my life again when I could, and I want to play the best music I've ever played with the best people I can get together with, and that is people that love you for the human being that you are. That that makes the best music, not necessarily the best musos. 
And so, yeah, that's happening. You know, I'm starting to shape again and I feel I'm only doing a couple of custom orders here and there. I don't want a lot, but they're very personal. I let people come in and have a feel of the rails and have a little rub of sand and talk to them about the soul that's going into this damn thing. Same as what they did to me when I was a kid. I used to be dragged into the shaping room and go, feel this. Can you feel the difference? And I go, no, nah, what's that? I go, well, that rail's pissed and that one's really good. Which one do you like? And I went, I don't know. You know, but that's going on. And music, I'm, I'm writing and playing with a couple of young women that um, live around Torquay. Both of them surf, play music, been in bands in Melbourne and had kids down here. And they're really great people. And there's a, there's a drummer in um, uh, Janjuk, Gary Crothall. He used to be in Goanna and he played in a band called Shadow Facts that supported Black Sabbath at, at, you know, when he was 18 and he went and worked for Rip Curl for about six million years in Dispatch. He's such a great guy and a great drummer. And, and like at 18, he's telling stories about, oh, yeah, Ozzy Osman comes in and, you know, we're like the kids from down the coast here. And, um, yeah, so there's some really great people around here, you know like amazing and when you play with him whoo, it's like playing with a diesel rather than a putt-putt you know yeah 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 yeah. when he hits it they stay hit those drum skins oh, i'm gonna need to see a photo of him because i you know I, I spent a lot of time in the uh, 90s and early 2000s working at root curl and we're always in that back area and i reckon i must have glasses yeah tall i'll get you a photo of him. yeah yeah okay because you just never know, right? Like, fucking Sauce hell. was his nickname. Sauce? Zoss, yeah. Zoss. That was his, Zoss. Fucking my brain's and, you know, so and I, shot. I go and see Goanna with him a couple of, about, oh, you know, three or four weeks ago they played their last Can thing. I Can I ask a question? Yeah. Goanna sing that song, right? And they've got a lyric about Torquay in it. Yeah. Living down beside Torquay. It's the girl. She moves to Torquay. Lulu. Yes. Getting herself together financially. Yes. <laughs> Lulu was a spunk. We used to go to parties at her place when we were... So know. she's a real person? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Skelly seen her a while back, and he said to her, Hey, Lulu, you getting yourself together financially or what? <laughs> <laughs> she goes, still working on it, Mark. <laughs> but that yeah. song is haunting. Isn't it? Uh, like, it gives me shivers when I listen to it. I'm like, what the fuck? See, Goanna started... It really got together in Geelong and Torquay. They, they're just people floating around who were musos and do it. There was a guy here, Bruce DeRevert, that used to sort of roadie and stuff for them. He he was living down here. He was uh, working as like a one of the early guys at Quicksilver, making sure production come through okay. He was also a brilliant muso, and Ross Hannaford and Daddy Cool were his friends and stuff like that. So it was all intertwined with the 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 surfing. It, it was weird. It was, and surfing was uncool, and yet certain members of Goanna were hooked up in it all, and well, and it was all like you know people knew who knew, and others didn't know anything about it. It's always the way, you know. I mean, Shane Howard was writing that song "Solid Rock" uh, at a time when he was get he got banned on the radio in Geelong for possibly inciting a riot and a race war. And all he's writing about, um, so you want to sell it in a marketplace. Well, wait a minute now. We're standing on solid rock, sacred ground. He wrote that 40 years ago or something, and um, 
when they first started playing around, it was all low-key, and then they started to get a following, and next thing you know, bang, it took off in the United States, and that band, that band actually inspired me and Scally to play because, um, you know, I had girls that used to say to me, you know, all you want to do is go surfing, eat food and play your guitar. And I go, yeah, I, yeah, I want to talk to you. She goes, well, it's not enough. <laughs> I go, but I can't do anymore. <laughs> Come surfing with me. I don't want to surf. But that's been my passion. Yeah. From the time I picked up guitar and was told I'd never be a decent guitarist, I've tried twice as hard. And when I started surfing, I had quite a few friends who were, like, much better surfers than me. And I'd be standing on the beach and, and it'd be 15 feet and they'd go, you can tell your grandkids. And I'd go, well, if I fucking survive. And they'd go, yeah, you'll be right. So paddled out and they were always better and I just sort of hung in there and got a few waves that I still sort of can't forget, right? Yeah. You know, so I think that's the way it is. And with music, didn't even didn't even know what was happening, really. Just played it, you know, and found myself in some amazing situations and... Those two things go together so well. I would, I would tell everyone to pick up an instrument if you're a surfer and just play. Just sit around the couch and play. You know, if you want to watch movies, turn the sound off and get onto SBS and you can actually still read the lyrics and just... I do that every night. I watch, you know, smelly old French movies with the, <laughs> the subtitles and the sound down, playing guitar, drive me, me put the water mad, you know? That is a great description. Smelly old French movies. <laughs> what are you watching, Dad? Don't ask. <laughs> Go back to your area. <laughs> Go back to your internet. Oh, the internet's mm. fucking hell. But do you get do you get on the YouTube and teach yourself stuff? Yeah, yeah. Like I think that, um, like there's so much information out there if you want to and and i get younger guys and older guys whatever who who have had an urge to make surfboards and in the last few years i've worked through zach's up in melbourne and done you know surfboard shaping coaching sort of thing and done one-on-ones with people and and a few others where we've got about four people but i say to them go home and, and just Google up, you know, how to shape a rail because there's so much out there and or how to plane down the deck of a board that hasn't been skinned yet or how to glass. And I said, you're never going to pick it up, you know, just like that because, you know, I'm still glassing and every day I walk up to a board to glass it, I know it's a challenge. Every it's And, and is the ocean any different? It might be two foot you can power your way out. But once it gets any decent size at all, you know that, you know, as much as you know the place, as much as you know the timings, that there will be times there where your number's dropped and it's bingo for you. You're in the impact zone and you're going to cop it, mate. And um, what are you made of, you know? So making surfboards is like that. Weather can be a bit milder, a bit more humidity in the air and it'll gel quicker. And I love, you know, a lot of the younger guys that are, are really good, you know. Sharma's fantastic. I love him, you know. He speaks really highly of you in oh, your relationship. He's a great man. Yeah. When he was a little bit younger, he worked with Rusty at, at Rip Curl there. And then, you know, he came over with me. I had a little factory in Torquay, in, um, sorry, Ocean Grove, and said, well, you can work with me. And Is that what Matty has? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's got that one. Yeah. 
And when I first went in there, I was doing my boards and, and Phipsies. And look, you know, you look out in the car park, he's another guy, Mark Phipps. People around here don't realise, you know, well, they maybe don't, maybe they do. But, you know, one, one Easter there, I'm in Ocean Grove, and there's six different pros in the top 20 pulling up from different times with the girlfriends and the sonny's on, the limos, you know, getting boards off him that he's made for them to pick up for Easter, whatever, and we're just pumping them out the fucking door. So, you know, we made like 25 boards in the week weeks leading up to Easter. Um, you know, Jeremy Flores and fucking... Well, I could drop, drop a lot of names, mm. but... You know, and, and then people have said to me, oh, you know, Ed Phipps, he's okay over in France. Okay, you fucking guys have got no idea. You're up your own ass. Got your head up your own ass. Pull it out. I mean, he is a great shaper. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable surfer. Yeah. Unbelievable. Like, I, don't, I don't know him very well, but I know him to say hi to, and he's just so... He's a fantastic man. Unassuming. Awesome. Awesome man. You know, funny guy. Brownie's another one. He, Brownie's a fucking... Genius, a bent genius, aren't you, Greg? Brownie. Um, yeah, Brownie. Greg Brown. <laughs> he's naughty, <laughs> but he's fucking brilliant. Um, I could tell you stories about Brownie and Phipsy and, and that whole raw gash thing where we went into a party in Geelong. So gash ripped out of the guts of raw. Yeah, and raw ripped out of the, gush, the guts of, of water-cooled. Okay, so Water that's where it's ripped out of the guts of Clem Bells. Oh, God, this keeps getting ripped out of the guts. Oh, I ripped, <laughs> fucking ripped out of the guts. <laughs> Cuzzo, one of the best glasses ever walk around on this earth. Um, one day we, we were having a Christmas drink, brownie and, you know, everyone from Gash and whatever. Anyway, Cuzzo's got a pair of um, Brazilian bikini bottoms on. He's gone out onto the Surf Coast Highway right in the middle of Torquay and it's new. It's Christmas Eve and there's just cars pouring down the highway and he sticks out his ass and hitchhikes, right, and we're all pissed going, ha, ha, ha. Next thing you know, the blue flashing lights. Cuzzo races back in, the cops chasing him and we hide him in the glassing room in the heater box. Pull the fucking blo- Don't know what you're talking about, mate. We're going to arrest that guy. <laughs> we don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> right, you guys. So good. Oh, they hated us. But so good, you know. Oh, far out. So that was, was that Gash days? Yeah. Yeah. Gash, Gash and then Raw. And I think that was Raw. Well, it could have been Gash. It was a bit blurry that, that time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's all been a bit blurry. 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 You know. All right, there's something that just, like, I don't know, you know, I was 16, 17 when I first saw Gash and it just had such a different edge and mm. I got I went in and got a poster. I could never afford a surfboard. Yeah. Uh, you know, think about it, you know, Simon Buttonshaw, he is just a legend of a surfer and martial arts instructor, yoga teacher at the highest level, Wayne Lynch, speaks for himself, Brownie should speak for himself, you know, and then the little gromos like, you know, Fipsy and fucking all those other bloody turkeys hanging along, and it was a shocking mix of chemistry. Uh, and Brownie would take his new nine-footer out at two-foot Janjuk and bang lips on it and go vertical, 
And I used to say, well, why, why, why are you riding it in that? Because I'd never, you know, thought about this. And he'd go, um, so that when he gets it down, he jumps up on that board for the first time and it's, it's dropping out of the sky. Mm. He knows how to bang at it two foot. But the young Gromos that were paddling around Janjak were horrified by this guy in this long needle, you know, <laughs> banging lips and what the fuck is that, you know? And then Brownie, two weeks later, you'd see him out there at the mile somewhere and he's just like, slash, bang, burn, you know? And, um, yeah, there's a lot in that, that, like, get it on, fellas. Open the minds up a bit, you know? He still goes 12 o'clock better than anyone. Like, he's just so oh, yeah. polished. Oh, he's a great surfer. Really is. Great man, too. Yeah. I've done some stunt driving with him that we can't probably talk about, but... <laughs> Why not? Oh, well. <laughs> we could be just, telling, we in, could be just telling Porky Pies. Sideways in Coventry Street, South Melbourne one night, going up the tram track sideways in full control of the back out, smoking with the wheels spinning, going past the taxi driver that cut him off going, can you fucking do that? Can you handle that, cunt? I said, Craig, let's get out of Melbourne, mate. I think we should. That, that's just one thing. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, uh, he, he, when, when Fipsy was like about 16, he goes, you're ready for a driving lesson, Mark. Um, and we're coming back from being, you know, underage, Mark's underage drinking in a nightclub with rock and roll bands in Geelong somewhere. And we're driving back over Mount Dunedin, you know, Brownie said, you drive. And so we're driving, um, we're in Brownie's V8 318 Valiant, you know, big, Eight-cylinder beast. Fipsy's driving, and and then Brownie's saying, "See it. See if you can take these fucking signs out for a hundred <laughs> without losing it, right?" And I'm going, "Oh!" At the time, I'm going, "Come on, Mark!" <laughs> you know. And then poor Mrs. Phipps, Mark's mother, said to me when she brought him over, "Um." Will you look after my boy? And I said, yes, Mrs. Phipps. I'll, I'll put him under my wing for you. <laughs> She's one of the loveliest ladies I've ever met. She used to bring us over cakes and things cooked. But I remember Phipps' 21st. Ack has, has put about oh, about a litre of acetone in the bottom, bottom of a 44-gallon drum. That's how he's going to light the fire. Thrown a match in. It's exploded. The fibre grades arrived, but that's... That's Jeff Sweeney's dad, Joe, said, we've had reports of flames flying 30 feet above the power lines. We don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, the Lonnie guys rock over with a beer bong, so it's Torquay and and maybe some Ocean Grove guys, some guys from Anglesey versus the Torquay boys drinking in the kitchen. The, the owner of... Um, Quicksilver Japan rocks up in a suit because he wants to come to the party. So he, he, they said, you've got to have a beer bong, mate. And he goes, no, I mean, I do beer bong, you know. <laughs> and then I, I've been reading up on Japan. I said, Bushido, the power and respect of the warrior. You offend me if you know do the beer bong. You in my house, you must do beer bong. He goes, okay, okay. And he bows. And... As he was drinking beer out of the beer bong, they're just pouring straight spirits in the end of it. 
Oh and Phipps, he reckons he's seen him in Japan about five years later and goes, your party, number one. <laughs> <laughs> so they were fucking good days. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> the beer bong. Those Lonnie guys are bad. Don't go near the beer bong with them. It's evil stuff, you know. <laughs> the poor guy, though. Look, he was in a suit, the full thing, you know, Mr. Mr. Quicksilver from Japan. Have you been to Japan? No, it's one place I'd love to go. I know, me too. Everybody says, like, it's so many people say it's their favourite place. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I've never been either. But do you remember Silas Hickey? Yeah. Yeah, he lives there now. Yeah, the poo shooter. <laughs> I know he, he came on this and he goes, don't you fucking ask me about the poo shooter. Don't mention the poo shooter, Silas. <laughs> <laughs> we, already, we already know what your mind's like, mate. <laughs> and everybody had one of those T-shirts. Yeah. It, was just, yeah. it should come back. <laughs> yeah. It's time to be, come, bring back the poo shooter. Resurrect it. <laughs> Tell me, this is this guy keeps popping into my mind and I don't know why, but have you come across Camel in your travels? Yeah, from Lawn. Camel... No, I think the camel was a WA guy who now lives in South Australia. No, that one I haven't, no. I've come across another camel. He was probably a humpback camel, and this would be a two-humper down <laughs> Yeah, there. double hump, yeah. yeah. No, I didn't. But I heard I heard reports. You always hear reports on the grapevine if you... You know, if you've driven from... Oh, have I driven Port Edland around here and then up to Queensland and been on the coast? You, you just meet people who know people. It's mm. quite interesting, you know? mm like, I, for example, I was in the desert very early days and we made it over there in an old FC Holden that had blown a valve climbing the Adelaide Hills and we thought, you know, we'll just keep driving, keep the oil up. So it would do 45 kilometres an hour on the flats and the whole car was shaking like... So it had three of us, two dogs and all our surfboards and stuff. We made it to Cactus... Then there was this local guy there who obviously didn't know that we'd been there before and he was dropping in on me every wave and I was making sure that I wasn't being a pig. Anyway, and he just said, oh, fuck off. And I said, mate, you'll find out. You've done it to the wrong man. Yeah, fucker. Right, fuck off. Back to Vico. And I said, all right, okay. So that night they're having a little get together at the back of the moon craters with a bit of a fire and a drinky. So we go around there and then this guy out there that uses like the maddest guy and the toughest guy in the desert called Moose picks me up, hugs me. Hey, you going Ralph, how are you? And I said, you see that little cunt over there? I told him what he did. He said, you, get here, kneel. This guy had to kneel in front of me (laughs) and apologise. And he said, will you forgive me? And I went, no, fuck off. (laughs) For real. And so that was the power of, like, the hardcore dudes. Moose was like, well, he's a big man. What a nickname, Moose. Moose. And he looked like a moose, like a a full-blown elk you see out, out in the Canadian Rockies, you know, and built like that. And, um... And I said to that guy, mate, when a guy rocks up and he's cool and he's travelling, you just never know who he knows, all right? And if he's not hassling you, don't hassle him. He didn't nod 
also, yeah, I just hope I got through, but probably didn't. He's probably had his lights punched out that many times, a little weasel that it doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> what happened to Moose? From what I hear, he's still out there. So, you know, it's like the desert is the desert. Yeah. And, and, and that whole area is where surfing meets the desert. You know, the dirt's red when it's windy and dusty and hot it is and, and certain sorts of people thrive out there, you know, and some amazing ones. There was one guy called Smiley. He lost his dog. He fucking hitchhiked around the whole of Australia, came through Torquay, Queensland, west, looking for his dog. Hitchhiked. Was it pinched? I don't. I don't know the end story if he ever got that, that dog back and I don't know if it was stolen or not, but the sort of character that he was to do that, be like, you know, can you imagine? Oh, dropping, walking the earth looking for your dog. Walking the earth looking for your dog. I wish I was his son, you know? <laughs> like, incredible. Fucking hell. It, it, Hardcore. He's still out there, Smiley. He's living down near um, Streaky Bay. You know, like, we think that the world has changed, which it has. It undoubtedly has. In some ways. In some ways. But if you revert back to those fringe areas, not that much. No. And the laws that we're talking about... uh, Still apply. Still apply. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And are still very healthy... You know, they have the farmer wants a wife. Maybe they should have the surfer wants a life. (laughs) (laughs) And and send them out there. (laughs) You've got to go feral for a while, mate. (laughs) These these urban cowboys, (laughs) they're learning to cope in the desert with mice sleeping in their bags and... Fucking eating wouldn't it beans be great, Wouldn't it be a great bloody reality show? Smelling like campfire every morning. Oh, yeah. Where's the toilet? No Come mirror. Dig a hole, pal. <laughs> Where's the water? You should have brought your own. Oh, fuck. So good. Oh, I'll write that down, actually. I'll pitch that to someone. It's going to start squeaking that toy. It's great. No squeaking. He's so good. Yeah. He's just been minding his own business and having a bit of a squeak. Yeah. Um, surfer wants a life. That is... Unreal. Yeah, that could be a great reality show. Yeah. Couldn't it? I'm gonna think, cut, think I'm gonna that. cut this bit out and pitch it to someone. <laughs> and it could be male or female. Yeah, totally. Or or anywhere in between these days. Footballers have always worn dresses. <laughs> I've got I'm a photo of myself go wearing a mini conversation <laughs> right now. I, I I have got a photo of myself wearing a nurse's outfit, mini skirt, went to a party in um Talking many years ago, and I, I shared a house with two nurses who lent me the whole outfit with the beds, the lot, you know, and a pair of tights. And I actually gaffer taped on a carrot oh, yeah. <laughs> down in my nether regions. <laughs> you should have seen the reaction. People tried to cut it with scissors, everything. Nah, if you can't be a dickhead, you're never going to be anything, are you? Oh, I love it. I, yeah, I was G.I. Jane one night. Yeah, I love throwing a wig on. <laughs> Yeah, me too. But it's dangerous territory these days. Oh, you're not allowed a lot. Yeah, humour, the greatest sense of all. This is the worry for me that 
this political correctness and having a conversation where we both find aspects of life that we've lived through funny, that some of it, they say, isn't okay in the modern day. But nonetheless, I feel like we're not allowed to talk about it. Yeah, we should be able to talk and discuss everything. But I think you shouldn't be able to use words as weapons to try and hurt someone. Oh, no, that's a different thing. Different. But to discuss, you know, it's like discussing, you know, religion, politics, feminism, machoism. How on earth do we learn if we don't discuss? You don't have to agree with what the person says. But I think one thing that's gone missing is the ability to hold a full-blown, passionate debate without losing it and have a different opinion to someone and go, well, I don't like what you say, I don't get where you're coming from, but okay, I'm understanding a little bit more because I've got books at home on Islam, the Koran. I've got books on Christianity, the Bible. I've got books on Buddhism. I've got books on Sufism. I've got books on Hitler, Stalin. Um, I've got books on uh, certain different Aboriginal uh, storytellers, American Indian, Sioux Indian storytellers, Amazonian Indian storytellers. I've got books on blokes who grew up in Footscray that ended up playing football at the MCG. I mean, fuck. Take it all in. Take it all in. That to be human isn't just one thing, you know. And just because you surf or you don't surf doesn't make you a better or worse person. Just because you get more waves doesn't make you a better person. Just because you're a hot muso doesn't make you a better person. None of it matters like that. We'll go back to, I think, the truest thing I've said. The person that's enjoying... The ocean, the most, is the most successful surfer in the water. Yeah, yeah. That Canadian guy. That Canadian guy. Cooking it out over the falls every single wave, hooting and yelling and laughing and hollering, just blew me away, right? And um, that that's the lesson. And to that, like, that, what I think about when you say that is you never know what that other person's going through. No. You, no, you don't. You know? You don't know... What they've fought off or, or who's died or where they've been or... How they're struggling. Right. No. I think about that a lot. Like, you know, you you don't know the person. They've just made a fuck-up. I'm taking anger from four other fuck-ups yeah. in the hour before and putting it onto them. And then I paddle off and I think, fuck me. We're all carrying baggage to one degree or another. But I, but I just think that if you're lucky enough to keep living and living and living until you die, you can either grow old and get grumpy and go, I'm not young anymore and look at those young people, <laughs> or just see your own journey is still continuing, you know, because from the cradle to the grave, nothing more certain than the fact that since you've been born, you're hurtling towards your death. And we're finite and that, that's it. it. Go and dispute it, anyone. It's it's you cannot dispute it. So I just slap myself around metaphysically and then give myself cuddles and go, fucking wake up, mate. You know, come on. Every single one of them, like like the Lord Buddha said, every single person, every single, and then. But I, trees, dogs, bugs, everything. 
everything. There is no disconnection. This is planet Earth. This planet Earth is dependent on, on the solar system, which is dependent on the Milky Way. And at the centre of the Milky Way is a super large black hole eating all the gases that make up suns. But they reckon that after it sort of shuts things down, Andromeda, that galaxy, is going to collide with ours. The two black holes are going to orbit each other and then it's going to generate all this stuff and it'll start all over again. And then they found... Uh, life-forming matter, like f- to to ignite stars, getting spat out of a black hole about a year and a half ago. Because um, I watch all these crazy science shows. Yeah, I love it. No, but what's the reverse of a black hole? Black holes in, ones out. Yeah. So, so stars are shooting out of the other side. They don't know if they're shooting out the other side. What they know is that oh, it, it could be the it eats, exhaust. It eats galaxies. It eats galaxies for breakfast. <laughs> But, and they thought that's all it did, but now they've found evidence of them regurgitating all the essential gases and stuff to start forming stars and galaxies again. So they eat and eat and eat for millions of years, and then every so often they just go, and out comes all this shit that can form life again. And here we are wandering, running around on Earth, Pieces of exploded stardust worrying about whether we've got freckled sunburn or we're getting old again. Like, the fucking thing's a miracle, isn't it? Well, it's fucking crazy what we get wrapped up and worry about. That's our biggest fault, fault and, and, and suck in, and it's all bullshit, and it's quite natural to get there. But I think the journey is throwing off all that, off the capes and the webs and the illusions and the onion rings all around us and go, hey... Get it on, bro. <laughs> foot the fucking foot down. <laughs> yeah. you know, Drop the clutch. Drop the clutch and fucking stick it into it. Because there's no no time like now. This is it, people. Corey Graham said to me a while ago, it's never going to get any better than this. Right now. It, it's your I, own I walked away perspective. Going, Fuck. You know, you can forget. Mm. And you can be down on yourself because you didn't surf as well as you could have. You can be down on yourself because maybe you didn't handle that situation as well as you could have or you didn't play that song as well as you could have or you didn't cook that food. That negative shit, I think that's there to just make you turn around and go, oh, okay. What is energy? You're going to waste it on... Negative negative energy isn't actually wasted if you can learn, if you can feed off it. It's wasted if you do, it'll take. It's like a black hole. It'll take all you got. You want to feed that black dog sitting on your shoulder. Honestly, it's voracious. It'll take all you got. Or you can sit it there and go, "Oh, thank you. I don't need your help today." Because I, uh, one thing I've learnt off reading and listening to Buddhist podcasts is that we're impermanent. We're, we're having a spiritual journey. We've got this physical stuff around us and, you know, like there's so much more to be done every moment of your day without, you know, I don't want to lay awake at night because of it. I want to sleep because that's, you know, I love sleep. I have little dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I had the weirdest dreams this morning. I'm not going to lie. They're like saying what he's just going that. 
I was like last night. I was like yesterday. I listened to a podcast. These guys were early to bed, up early, making the most of life. Right, and I was mm. like, I'm going to change. This was me yesterday afternoon. I'm fucking flipping this round. Well, because I'm in the pattern, I still didn't fall asleep till midnight. And then when I woke up this morning, I slept till nine. And I was like, fuck, Rouse is coming over here in two hours. I fucking got a million things to do. And fuck, fuck. But then my, this dream I had permeated those two hours before you arrived. Good. And it was so abstract and obscure, but it didn't leave. Mm. You know, and it was like, I haven't had drugs, I haven't had anything yet, this thing that Dreams happened. try to tell us things. Yeah. Sometimes we don't like what it's telling well, us. Well, I didn't like what it was saying. Mm. I had this studio fucking apartment thing, and it was nothing but space, and I had to always be sweeping it out, mm. and I wasn't actually creating anything mm. in it but keeping it clean, but I felt really good for having this space, mm. and then I realised I owed someone money for the space and I didn't have any. Mm. And that was the dream. Well, then look through it and don't worry about the money because it's a numbers game. And, you know, when you haven't got any, hey, it ain't much fun. True. But in our society, at least, we give you the bottom line. If you're ill, you will be taken to hospital if you've got no money and operated on. And, you know, if you are destitute, people offer you houses to stay in, places to stay in and food. And it might be the government, it might be the salvos or whatever. And I've gone up to homeless blokes that are young, you know, only about 18 and 19, and go, do you want me? I'll drive you. I'll drive you to a place I know now. I haven't had one taker that wants to go. So we've got the right to say no, to receive help. I've got the right to get up and put your life behind you and start again. It's free will. That's the incredibly wonderful but frustrating thing about being a human being, you've got the right to be, you've got the right to be a complete fucking arsehole, but know that the consequences are different than if you're walking around like Mother Teresa, you know? That's that's what I've learnt. And I'm no saint, because I still stand on ant trails. I'm no. not looking. No, I know, and that's the thing, right? But it's like, that's... You can have saintly moments. Mm. I don't think the wrestle ever dies. It doesn't. The Dalai Lama says when people are born, they're 99%. The human condition is 99% stir crazy. And he sits there and I've seen this, this podcast and he goes, but why would we learn meditation and control of the mind then? Because if we can get back to 98, 98% said a 99, he goes, that's a whole 1% more control. And you, then you're 2% less stir crazy. He goes, isn't that worth doing? Because that's progress. I went, fuck. He's not talking about, hey, you get yourself back to 50 50 or I become <laughs> walking on the water like Jesus. No, 1%'s good, man. Take it. You know, so that's, that's, that's our living thing. That's the way. That's what I do. It's it's no different than paddling out when the ocean's big, and I relate back to it all the time. Life is exactly like the sea. It's pumping lines at you, wave after wave after wave, endless, endless, restless ocean. It might be small one day, might be medium the next, it might be flat the next, but you know there's there's things coming, and you're going to have to deal with them. And if you don't deal with them, it's going to either wash it back to the beach 
will fucking drown you and take your life away. That is life. That that's to me is life. So I'll take it all. The lot, the pain, the sadness, the happiness, the joy, the hope, the hopelessness. Because you still got to paddle out. We just got to keep paddling. Every time you're out there and you feel like giving up, don't give up. Fuck it. Stroke on with half Bethany Hamilton with one arm. Fipsy reckons he was surfing in France and the boys are out and they're all good surfers. Jeremy and everyone, Bethany paddled past everyone with one arm in the rip. Doesn't give up like for hours and he just still shaking his head over that. Like that's impressive. I couldn't do that. But I'd have to learn. There's the fact, though, also that you, she's back in the ocean with the beast that took her arm. Yeah. Is, to me, to overcome that, like, oh, fuck, that and unto that itself. that fear still lives within her. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, like people say, oh, don't get scared. That's fucking bullshit. Everybody has fear, but you can deal with fear, right? And, like, even you see those shows where Philippousis and that went on the SAS thing. I didn't see it, but, yeah. It's worth seeing. Yeah, I heard it was good. People running into really fearful situations where they think they're in control and you have to go for that deeper breath and, you know, that that I don't want to be here but I am here, got to get out of here somehow. Well, you, you won't get out of there by panicking. Like, if the ocean's got you down and you panic, you die. So when the ocean's got you down, you have to do the direct opposite of panic and that is steal your mind and go very calm. Fight when you have to fight to get up, but you have to wait for your moment. And and there probably it'll happen to everyone that goes surfing and it might only be a small day. And a lot of people are scared of you know, progressing to bigger days. And I just say to them, just ride the small days and go for the biggest waves on the small days. Keep going for the biggest waves on each day you go and then eventually you find yourself out the back going, where the fuck and hell is everyone else? Oops. That's how it goes, you know, for me and a few friends. Williamstown Ripples, and there was a few guys like Ray Freef was another one, Johnny Morrow was another one. Those guys went and and challenged the biggest waves they could find anywhere. When we were in Indo, biggest day at Ulu's, initial early days, we're all out there having a go because we've come from that to that to that to that and and there's no limit in the, mentally then. You have to ride it. You have to have a go, you know. If you say you only get four foot your comfort zone, well, go out when it's four foot. Should I say wait for a six-footer? <laughs> and take it, you know. And when you've done the six-foot days, wait for an eight-footer and sit patiently and wait and then put yourself in the hot spot and do it. And then the people that surf around you will have at least respect for your guts, right? And that's what you deserve instead of it's not stupidity, it's guts. I really respect people's guts. Some girls are starting to show some guts and I'm loving that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Anyone with guts, I love them. 
Well, it's just, it's just anyone that's having a go, right? Really, yeah. that's out of their comfort zone. It can be someone looking like if I'm driving down the street and I see someone out of shape going for a run. It's like, fuck yes, you go, mm. you get it. Mm. You know? My son's teaching, um, he's a CrossFit coach. Oh, fucking, I do CrossFit. Yeah. So he's up, uh, up at uh, Malulaba. Yeah. But you know what he loves? Because I've got into his head about big wave surfing and the mentality of that and talked to him when he was a kid about training and I asked him if you want to play footy, train harder, or anything you want to do, just do the best. But now he teaches people like that. But he also said, you know, someone comes in fat, out of condition and unfit, and he goes, you're going to be the best of everyone because you are really going to fucking dig this if you let yourself. Yeah. That's the way he is. It's addictive. And mm. I tell you, I, I was listening to what you were saying before about like um, wanting to get the best out of yourself. And I do it solely because I'm 46 and I don't think I've ever been fitter. And I do it three times a week mm. for that, for the ocean. Mm. And it just, I feel like I feel really good in the water. Better than I ever have. Well, that's what I talk to. I mean, I'm a stepson. He's a CrossFit coach and he's got his own gym, CrossFit Barwon. And my son does it. And who else? Oh, just about everyone I know fucking does it. It's pretty effective. Yeah. And But I say to them, if you can get people in there that want to do it for a reason, there's got to be, you know, I said, I don't know if you're used to working with surfers, but get into their head about, you know, What's going to be good for surfing? And like I was going back to your swimming, my swimming thing, like, and I used to sit in the bath. I laid in the bath and used to got got up to being able to hold my breath for three and a half minutes. I didn't have a coach to do it, but I sort of figured that it might be a good idea to do this shit. You know, and I've seen in Hawaii and a couple of movies where they grab boulders and run yeah. along it with sand. That makes sense to me. If you're going to do CrossFit and it's hurting... Push a bit harder and go, you're not going to get any love out of the sea when it wants to hold you down or work you. Or when your shoulders are sore and I just want to go home now, you've got to push through. Nothing has put me in that zone of pain like those CrossFit workouts. Mm. And what the for the benefit, like, no, fuck, it's just all beneficial. You leave feeling good, you, whatever. But is leg strength. Mm. I found... Box like, jumps. Oh my god! And squats, yeah, thrusters, and yeah, fucking. Yeah. But that correlating into turns, you got to laugh at this if you do do CrossFit. When we go and have a jam with the band, I take the bass player and drummer, everyone. Mm. We go into um, Dudley, my, my, my stepson's um, gym on a Sunday afternoon. There's no one around. He lets me have the gym. And we go to set up, and Gary, he's just got the driest humour. He goes, oh, we're finally in the house of pain. Because <laughs> look at all the pain around here. It's coming out of the walls. You know, there's all sorts of like, dumbbells yeah. and ropes and shit everywhere. Yeah. Oh, it's so funny. Fucking hell. Those, what are those rigs with the chin-up bars and the fucking, yeah. 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 Sweat, sweat machines. Yeah. Um, I might have to go to the loo. Yeah, well, I'll pause it. That was in, uh, sorry. Cool. Uh, Rouse has just noticed the photo in my toilet. Penis reduction. Save our women. 
<laughs> Funds needed. A dollar photo. <laughs> you know, I took that photo and it was down at, uh, in Santa Monica. God. And only when I got home and I put it in the computer, I saw photo one dollar. Yeah. So I was the thing, I snapped it and then just went, thanks, mate, and just walked off. And then I was like, oh, you fucking idiot. The poor dude wanted money. Well, innovative. Yeah, right? Mm. Anyway, I always get to chuckle. Classic. Yeah. Yeah, I lived in the States for oh, close to seven years. Really? Yeah. <clears throat> and it's funny, like you said earlier, um, you know, we are everything. We're all all things. And I used to have an acting teacher, studied acting in New York for a couple of years. Oh, yeah, that's full on. <laughs> yeah, it was full on, okay. really full on. That gets into yourself, out of yourself? Y- yeah, and one of my teachers used to always say, we are all things. And then years later, I was at a different acting school and there was another teacher. Then she blew my fucking brain on this one. And she goes, you are partial. This is quite wooey as well. But you are made up of Cleopatra's bathwater. <laughs> because Earth is a closed circuit. Oh, yeah. Nothing leaves. No. So, you know, on death, we evaporate mm. eventually. Go back up into the little clouds. cells. Yeah, we're talking quantum physics. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And we are all things, all story, all everything. Oh yeah, is with. How do we know what's stored in one cell? Like Cleopatra's bathwater. There's no, there's no disconnection. And when she said that, her name was Diana Castle. You're, no, you're Cleopatra's bath bathwater. <laughs> Quite nice. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful, stinky water. I'll it was take milk it too. Yeah. <laughs> Was it milk? Was it? Was that is that a Dove commercial? Yeah, well, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So, like, um, yeah, there's a few things that you've said through our chat that have reminded me of little bit snippets that teachers have told me along the way of connectivity mm. and that all is lying within us. It's just that, you know, under given circumstance, we become different things. Yeah. Right? You go like... Yeah, we do. Look, you know, put, put us in, in, in a war zone... We become soldiers. Put us in a monastery, we become monks. Put us out in the surf, we become surfers. Yeah, yeah. But then going to the other thing that you were saying before uh, was, you know, we have that freedom and right, and w- which we do. We in this country, we have free free will. Yeah, we have free choice. You can even, you know, governments can do whatever. But it, it's accepted that you're going to protest if you want to, you know. And and you, if you want to turn your back, you know, I reckon if you want to turn your back on society and you don't like civilization the way it is, it's a big country. You can go and live out the back of Cooper Pedy, no worries, you know. <laughs> Pretty cheap and eke out a living out of picking up crumbs of the, out of the dirt there of, of rock, you know. Um, I just think you can. You can. If but... you were born in the Ukraine, for example, right now, that wouldn't be good. If you're in that town where there's missiles raining down on you. But here we are with our, you know, people are complaining about, and I've probably been it. We all think, and I think the same, that our politicians aren't so shit hot at the moment. But they could be a lot worse. And that's evidenced around the world. Well, Iran was where I was going to drive to. Iran. Try, you know. Ask the Uyghurs what it's like being a Uyghur in China. Oh. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, try go to some some 
African countries where if you don't come from that tribe, you're in trouble because the other tribe's in power. And that really is, there's no, for me, if all people originated out of the, and this is what they're saying, the Bushmen of Africa, it's amazing how diverse things go. <laughs> Such a look. Uh, the Bushmen of Kandahar? Oh, Kandahar. I don't even know. That's just something that popped in my brain. What, what, what do they do? The Bush. Well, they believe that the Bush, the Bush, the Bushmen, they nickname them in Africa, that's where they've traced back the DNA that all sort of human life seems to evolve there first. Really? And it's gone on to Scandinavian countries and people have become white and tall and, you know, over there and they become yellow and green and red. And, you know, you can have a blood transfusion from any human being as long as they've got the same blood type in the world. So for me, it's like, you know, there's no... It's like... It is simplified, like, in a football culture, certain teams and clubs conduct themselves a certain way, which others approve and disapprove of. And um, that's the way life is too. So, for me, I'm just saying, no, no, skin no. colour doesn't matter to no, me. It never fuck, has. No, me neither. Like it's so for cr- some people, it does. I, I, I know, but I've it felt is wild. Prejudice, white people. I felt I've had black people who were prejudiced. I've seen yellow. I've seen the pink. I've seen them all because they exist everywhere, and it's you know everything like that. <laughs> Is driven from fear. It's fear. You know, when someone's lashing out in the streets, it's fear. They're fear, full of fear. They've come from fear, so they try and inflict fear because they're fearful of someone getting on top of them and giving them the a good shellacking. So back in the day when you were younger and you had sharpies and you had skinheads yeah. and you had, you know, and everyone is dressing the same. Mm. They're identifying with each other. Yeah. And if you don't identify with me... Same as what surfers do now in in our subculture, a certain look, although it's broadened of late, Mm. you know. But, yeah, and look, I can remember being a surfer when I first started in Williamstown and there was going to be a big fight. So the Willie boys were going to fight the... The Eltona boys, because apparently the Eltona, the Eltona boys were going to make a raid on Williamstown Beach. So the Willie boys said to our surfers, just know in a couple of hours the Eltona boys, you stay on that side of the of the um, shelter sheds and you should be all right because they, they won't get past us. We'll fight them, right? Well, you guys go surfing, we'll fight. So Williamstown was an interesting culture that if you surfed, they didn't make you fight. But if you didn't surf, you had to fight. (laughs) (laughs) The surfers didn't really want to fight. Yeah. But they still mates that grown up and gone to school together, right? So there was this subculture on the beach, and they even had um, board sacrifices there. My board got sacrificed one northerly day, pushed out to sea. Because there was no swell, and then later on, when I learnt that there was never going to be any swell, <laughs> only a bit of wind dribble, how can the swell get through the heads? 
bastard sacrificing my boy for nothing. Out it went, <laughs> out on an orderly. Because, uh, you know, that was getting seen, I think, in movies that they were doing board sacrifice, yeah, beach yeah. boys and all that sort of shit, you know. Oh, so good. Mm. American films when you were that age, there was an American film that I remember. There was some guy that lived on a pier and he used to throw his surfboard out of the bedroom window mm. and, and jump in and then paddle in surf and there was like surf Nazis. I don't know. This is I saw this movie when I was on the farm and I'm just one of those ones like the Beach Boys, anything that had any kind of... Well, you know, I, my first surfboard was like one of those nine-foot-odd logs that are made out of about... 25 ounces of fiberglass with a huge defin in the back. You couldn't turn it in a million years. Some people could, but um, I, I used to get taken down here because there was a guy called Bear, and he was quite a good surfer, and he knew Ducky and that from uh, Point Lonnie and, and Ocean Grove. And Ducky? Was, yeah, pretty good surfers. OG Ducky. Yeah. So he, is he, stop me if I'm wrong, but he found Corsair. Yeah. So I used to go to his place when I was about, you know, 13. I used to get a lift down with Bear because his younger brother and me went to school together. And these guys could already, they were real surfers. They were doing it from the ground up for, for decades. So I went straight into that. But one of the funny things, you know, they took me surfing and I went over the falls about a million times and got dragged into waves I didn't want to but besides that there used to be these parties at the back of 13th beach in the in the bunkers there in the uh at the back of the golf course so it'd be there'd be Torquay guys there Barwon Heads guys there Ocean Grove and Lonnie they knew each other they mingled a bit but they didn't mingle that much and I'm gonna I'm gonna blow your listeners away because <laughs> when I was at the ripe age of 15 big bonfires going in the night blokes getting drunk and doing the, oh, yeah, yeah, like feral tribal people then almost the call to arms came there was a wanking competition <laughs> oh my god now being yeah. a good catholic boy who was already a wanker I I didn't think too much of it. I thought it was a bit weird because they all lined up. So they all lined up, you know, about 20 guys from each side of the bonnie (laughs) and someone said, five, four, three, two, one, bang. The first person to blow their load was the winner. Those that bunch of people were then looked upon as the champions. So if you ever hear that they're a bunch of wankers, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. And that's what I say. Sometimes I go to I walk in, work in Ocean Grove or go in Lonnie and some younger crew look me up and down and I, and I look at them and I go, if you only fucking knew about your dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll let it go for the moment, you arrogant little prick. <laughs> But true. Oh, my God. That, it, that, that's mind-blowing, but that was the culture of the feral, uh, you know, that's why people called us seaweed heads and degenerates and because, well, that happened. Yeah. I was only about, I don't know, not very old, and I was sort of more like, wow, hope I don't have to do this. 
Well, I mean, I always heard it like as a, a younger person, it was like a mythical thing that happened, and everyone always jer- um, jerked. Everyone always joked about the circle jerk and the <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And all that. circle jerk. It's a jerk of life. Yeah. <laughs> So proving once again that men are wankers, and it's true. Yeah. Any time a chick yells out at me, you're a wanker, I go, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. It's true. Well, it used to be when you were young, it was a real, like, oh, he's a wanker, and you'd be like, oh, he's a wanker. But now it's just like, yeah, it's fucking, so what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, for real. So so that was going on. And that went on all over the, oh, you know, when I went to Phillip Island, there, there were like a, eating competitions where, you know, you'd have hot dogs or whatever and guys would just eat as much as they could and when they couldn't eat anymore, they'd just vomit and go again. Like at, at the at the um, Phillip Island board riders things. Man, they were insane. Remember Sizzler? Mm. Sizzler or Pizza Hut used to do like all you could eat. Yeah. I, I, I did that as a teenager. <laughs> no wonder you got into trouble. <laughs> So I'm going back to the fucking dessert bar. <laughs> oh god! You know, other things that happened. You know, when I I finally got my car, I think I, I think I had my car. First car I bought was a combi, like a people carrier. Yeah. I used to have a carload of me mates from from Welly, and we were we were we were going to ride sunset. We we had this shit in our mind, you know, but. Friday night, I can remember one Friday night, um, Torquay Point, you know, um, and High Tide. A whole bunch of Torquay locals standing, and this is the way, they were standing on the cliff in a group, and this is the way you got accepted. So I'm out the back, and uh, of course, this is before leg rope, so I've lost my board, and I'm at that stage where I could surf a bit, but not really good, and... Um, my board washes up, so Willie Muncie raised us down onto the sand. He was another shaper. He used to have soul creation. He um, grabs my board, race up to where the group is, and they're all these like fucking you know rooster and booster and gooster and mooster, all standing there. And you know, and then he goes, "Open your mouth." So he pops a fucking acid trip into my mouth. I'm about, I don't know, not very old. So I go back out, Torquay Point. <laughs> that, if I handled it and surfed okay, you pass. And then, still wasn't fully accepted, but one Saturday afternoon we went, we were sort of outside the beer garden at Torquay, because we weren't really old enough to be in it, and then couple of carloads, once again, a Ballarat guy's come down looking for some skegheads to belt up. <laughs> so they started laying into, you know, Brooko, Strapper, and all local guys who were fighting. So we, being Willie boys, dived in, and we were younger, so two or three of us under one adult um, from Ballarat. And because we fought, we all won. Because we fought, they just said, you're in? And come to the fire from now on. That meant we could go to the fire at Bells and have a warm. Because up until then, if you went to the fire, fuck off. Go on, fuck off. And you wouldn't dare drop in. You wouldn't dare drop in. 
So we got invited to the fire from there on in. We began to be accepted. And they would say, hey, going up and down on the climb to the cliff. There were no steps down a winky pop. It was slide down in the mud and fucking hang on to a hunk of root, you know, and dodge the fucking whoever had shat there. <laughs> it was bloody horrible. And coming back up, even when wetsuits are invented, your wetsuit was torn to shreds sometimes and uh, mud and, and clay all over you because there were no walkway. People can't realise this. It was just like if it had been middle of July and really raining and we'd had that wet time, wow, getting out of the water at the pop was like a big deal. You'd need 10, 15 minutes to get to the top, you know. Bells yeah. was okay because it already had steps. But um, Winky Pop, no. Yeah. Now going back, I... And Brooko, he he could have handled it himself, right? He oh, was... him and him and Dennis Day, whoo, nailed him, because Brooko was a, a Golden Gloves boxer, and his dad was a professional boxer too, wasn't he? Yeah, and and Strapper could fight. He was good. He 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 was dropping them like flies, and a few other local guys here all dived in to help us, and um, you know looked around from there on in. When you go and shopping in Gilbert Street, and go, where you going, yeah, bro? You know. <laughs> Little kid had a go. Yeah, yeah. He, he took a few. Yeah, for the for the team. But the other side of things were I remember um, when I was about fifteen, I was down by the footy oval at Torquay, and I was going to hitchhike back to Melbourne that night, and it was getting a bit late, and this car pulled up, and uh, a couple of boards on top, and I think, oh yeah, I'm set. So I run up, and I. You know, they had the windows open and it just spat straight into my face. And, you know, I never forgot that guy. I remembered him. I didn't do anything, but I never forgot him. And then years later, and I won't mention his name, but years later I was at uh, somewhere and we were doing repairs and they go, how much do you reckon this one's going to be, Rouser? And I went, 350 And I went, what? I said, 350 bucks. I'm not looking at it. And I went, later on I told him, I went, oh, fucking no wonder. It was like a 200 buck job. It was a fair job. Yeah. But I seen him and I went, nah, fuck you. I'll never forget, never forgive it. Did he pay? Yes. Oh, that's good. Got a good job too. $150 spit in the face. It cost him, but he didn't know it. (laughs) But what a prick. Fucking oath. Hey? Picking on a Gromo, who's 15, mind you, trying to hitchhike home to mummy. Fuck, do you remember that shit? Like, I remember um, one day going up to some bloke at the Pinnies and being like, can I have a drag on your cigarette? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and he took a drag and just blew it in my face. Oh, no. <laughs> and I just remember being so, like... Thanks for your kindness. So, yeah. So, who the fuck was I thinking asking a bloke for a drag on his cigarette anyway? Like, you know. But, you know... That, that... That beer gun that Torquay, I remember, was classic one night because um, we just rocked up to go in there and um, it was the young Craig Pinhead. Yeah. He was lipping off at about three or four guys and they were going to work him. But he's sort of like, yeah, you fucking cunts are going to get it off, fucking do it. <laughs> I looked over and went, these guys are serious thugs from like Norlane or somewhere. So we had to go over there and sort of ha- have a word to them, you know. And there were about six of us, four of them plus Craig, and someone had to restrain Pinhead because he was just going, "Oh fucking kill you!" <laughs> and 
we're going, shut up. <laughs> we had to talk our way out of it, you know, and sort of go, look, you know, we're going to wreck you big time because that's what we like doing. He's an idiot. He's a dickhead. Leave him alone. He's only a kid. But he fucking said this. And, and they did leave him alone. But I think still the best thing I've ever seen, there was a shaper from... Um, I think San Diego that that shaped in Hawaii too for for Brewer, and he came to Torquay. Biggest guy I've ever seen in my life. He was not, name was Mike Zacrato. He was shaping boards at Rip Curl, and he's the biggest guy you've ever seen. And he used to get in there in the morning, but by lunchtime he got a bit thirsty, so he used to just drink stubbies. A stubby in his hand looked like a bottle of that. Um, you know the hand grenades, the smaller stubbies? Yes. <laughs> he just sipped one like that, right? And anyway, one day, he, Russell told me this, I didn't see it, but he said his hand just came straight through the shaping room, into the glass room, going, fuck it! He used to shape a board, get half pissed, but he could shape a whole board with an electric sander. He was really good. Real, his big thing were guns or boards for big guys. Well, anyway, one night we went into, um, for some reason, oh, I'm not silly, I used to hide under his little wing, you know, he, and guys would come up to him and go, geez, you're big, mate, and he'd go, Ugh. he was big. He was probably about 6'8 and probably about 180 kilo. Yeah, fucking of muscle. Wow. Surfed really well. Surfed really well, like a moke. He was in the black shorts. The only white guy, guy in the black shorts in Hawaii at the time. So anyway, we're at, we're at the wool exchange, and there's about six or eight surfers in there, you know, partying on, trying to grab a chicken, listening to bands and all that. And anyway, this young guy, Chappie, he worked in retail at Watercool selling boards and stuff. But Chappie was cheeky, <laughs> so he's he's put a couple of um, boys from Carrio and Norlane. Put their noses way out of joint. Anyway, they're wanting to fight him and the bouncers broke them up in there. So we get out the front and there's, there's um, Mike, Zacrato, the giant, me and PK. And PK and I just surfers. We're just thinking we're hopeless in a fight. You know, we'd bark more than bite. Anyway, we get down to PK's car and we're giving Chappie a lift home back to Torquay. Around the corner they come, and it was just like that movie, you know, a fucking a horror movie. They were silhouetted, the light was behind them, it was like this gang was going to kill us. So Mike just walked up to them, and he just said, go away. And they went, no, we want him, not you. We've got no trouble with you, but that guy's got to go. Mike has just picked two of these guys up, by the chest on their T-shirt and held them up above his head, literally, like two two tennis balls. Shook them and said, Mikey's getting angry. <laughs> Mikey's getting angry. <laughs> and he put them down. They went, fucking sue you, mate. Anyway, he's ripped his jacket in half. Like he, he was a strange guy. <laughs> Tie and, and and he looked like Malcolm, Malcolm, Malcolm Fraser's fucking... Crazy, crazy a jacket. He was, like, totally uncool, but fucking cool. He ripped that in half and said, Now, Mikey's angry. Now. Ooh. He's hitting his chest like a gorilla. 
And these guys just backed off and said, we'll fucking sue you, mate. You fucking lay a hand on this. Anyway, we got People in the car. calling the suing thing back then. Yeah, yeah, they were saying, they were shit scared. Yeah. We're going to fucking sue you because they, they feared for their life. And Pete and I stood behind his car and Chappie came back and, and then Mikey grabbed Chappie and slapped him once behind the head and said, you shut the fuck up now. Put him in the car. Chappie was sort of like, I think I better shut up, you know. But surfers on tour. Oh, I can't believe the wool exchange. How long has that been around for? Long time. Fucking, I remember like, I think I, I tried to walk home one night. I made it to the train line before someone picked me up yeah. from the wool exchange. Yeah. And it's still going strong, I think. It, well, apparently it is. I don't go anywhere near that. No, me neither. But I'm, I'm pretty. It's like every time it's... You, they've still got your photo. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be, you know, before Torquay had any girls. Like I'm, people don't believe this. There were, I've seen some of the best looking ladies in my life living around and being around Torquay these days. I'm just going wow, because when we were, you know, twenty, twenty five, there were hardly any. Like, really seriously hardly any. There were, like, a whole lot of guys came here to go surfing and the girl population hadn't responded at the time. So we used to have to go into Geelong and uh, go go out to a nightclub and, like, there'd be carloads of feral fucking surfers <laughs> desperate for a kiss. <laughs> but even Geelong was a rough place then. Yeah. But we used to stick together, be, you know, 15 or 20 of us floating around in any nightclub and we'd all know, you know, they're all surfers, we're all cool, we're, yeah. we're in the tribe. And we'd, eat, we'd meet guys from Anglesey and Lawn that had come out too that were desperate to meet females. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's changed really except there's, I don't know. Do you think women have bred up? There's more of them? Or what's going on? Or have they got be- more beautiful? I don't... No, but my guess would be just surfing's become more accepted and yeah. therefore, you know, it's girls want to do it, guys want to do it, and so there's just more. Yeah. There's just more. And and girls, are, you know, when I was, you know, still, still see them rocking up in vans with their boards, living the dream like I was, you know, like... Oh, I don't want to ask. I don't want a boyfriend. I just take me to the surf, please. Oh, to in now? Yeah. Oh, crazy, completely. Yeah. There's a whole subculture, subculture of people. Um, Gareth was telling me this the other day because he travels and spends a lot of time on the, you know, like camping and meets a lot more of that demographic. But he says there's a whole demographic of people out there who are young, who are sort of like, we're never going to be able to afford a house. Mm. This is it. Mm. And so they just travel like like sort of old days. Yeah. And they he's like they'll invite you in for a meal. They're mm. all, then they don't really drink. Mm. You know, it's like a subculture of new kind of Well up at Vanders when he had that factory there, um there used to be, you know, Jake from WA, there was a Kiwi guy. Oh he had, did he have that Hilux with the sort of hard top back thing? Yeah. Yeah. That's Jakey. Yeah. Cops came up one night and said to him Where's the wire going, mate? Because it's coming out of Vander's factory and into his gun. He's got a, one of the oil heat, or Colton oil heaters in here. So, well, it's stopping me from, from, from freezing to death. And they go, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm just here for the night. And they go, we see you van there every night. He goes, well, I'm here for the night every night. <laughs> he lived in that. Full on. 
Is he still around? He's in WA. He's setting up. He's between. Um, he's between um, York's Peninsula and up in Yanchep. He's he's setting up a, a factory over there to make surfboards and repair them. He's a classic. Like he used to handshake nine foot six guns and wow, he is a he's a man that totally froths. He's he's like detergent. He's 24-7 froths. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been to WA? Yeah. Did you did you ever come across a shaper in Marg's called Tom Hoy from Hawaii? Precision I, Equip. I, I, I actually didn't, no, mm. but I've met him. I haven't met him, but I've heard about him, spoken about him. Yeah, yeah. I, he, he shaped me my first custom when I was 18. I drove over there and spent a year in the West. And there's just a lot of things that you've sort of said that are keep just taking me back to mm. just those interactions with Tom and, you know, like he, he, he was just, that was, he lived and breathed also windsurfer uh, boards, mm. you know, mm. like, the, you know, you're talking about like rail lines, foils, mm. concaves. Mm. Mm. They're right into developing shines and concaves and, and everything in, in board design, those, uh, Wind surface and um, what's it called when they they rod with the sail, you know? Kiteboarding. Kiteboarding. Yeah. That's pretty full on. Crazy. Like, if you look at it now, like what people are doing with the, f- like, foiling. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the one, the foiling where they've got just the hand thing? And yeah. The, that looks odd. Yeah. I, I think the, the, the one where it's out on strings is, looks a little bit more poetic than the one where they're like, that's pretty full on, isn't it? <laughs> who, who, humans still inventing ways to get out there in the water. Yeah. You know, like, and Timmy, I, sorry, Timmy, Steve and Jeff Rowley are now doing these downwinder things. Have you heard of this? No. Probably Palm and, and Crawley as well, but um, they, they go out to sea on the foil and they catch like bumps. Open ocean swells. Open ocean swells, they're calling them bumps. And they've caught them now from like back of, out the back of Bells all the way back to Jack. One. Hmm. It's like snowboarding almost, I guess. Laird Hamilton used to catch those open ocean swells way out the back. You know, he was one of the pioneers of it all, and he's old. He, he's riding those things that are coming in towards Wyomere and Sunset, like, because there's that trench in a yeah, way, yeah. huge trench, which funnels it all. I love that idea, though. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. But <laughs> what I don't love is if you've seen those sort of boards they're riding, they're not that big. And if you miss the bump, because they link them supposedly, like mm. it's like there's a real subtlety to it because mm. it's just riding that line of energy. Yeah. Mm. And if you miss a bit or you sort of edge off, yeah. then you're stuck. Yeah. They're a long way out. A long way out. Yeah. That's where you need, you know, someone following you in a in a ducky or something. Yeah. Or a jet ski. And but they just eat it up, paddle in. Oh, you're beautiful. Yeah. Timmy, Timmy says, and Jeff had some like long paddles in, and that's the part where I'm like, "Fuck that!" So, uh, how do you paddle in on those tiny little things? Well, just just slowly. Well, it's part of the journey. Yeah, no, totally. Rouser, I want to say, I, I think we're at three hours and ten minutes. No, oh, I thought it was about an hour, and I thought I've over talked. <laughs> no, no, this is great, but I think I want to say thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. I really uh, appreciate you coming over. You've been so open and 
we've covered a lot of territory from spiritual spirituality to fighting <laughs> and everything in the middle. <laughs> Waxing up. Yeah. Um, so thank you. Cheers, mate. Yeah. Thank you. Well, there you have it. There was my chat with none other than Rouser, the man, the myth, the legend. Rouser, thanks again. Thank you so much for coming over and um, and being so generous with your time and and open and honest on on so many levels. It's just it's so um, inspiring. You know, I find it really inspiring um, in my own journey of connecting more with um, you know my own insecurities and feelings and fuck-ups and not trying to get life right, you know. I think it's, uh, for me, uh, I, the more I can just be thankful for the small things that I have and the hiccups, uh, the ups and downs. And, Rouser, you really brought that home for me. It was just, um, you know, it, it's really nice. It's really nice. It's really nice to fail uh, and to feel all the things, so thank you so much. If you're still out there in the wide world listening to this, I thank you so much for lending me your ears. Um, you know, really, really appreciate it. I love all the, the the messages that I get from people. I really enjoy the process of the horse's mouth. Um, yeah, so wherever you are out there in the world, in space, I know there's no one out there listening in space. It's not, it's not showing uh, in my stats. But in the world... <laughs> Fucking thank you. Anyway, until next time, be well, ride the lightning, fucking pedal to the metal. That's it. That's it. Drop the clutch, as we're saying, you know, like, fuck, I feel like I wasted a lot of time fluffing around. And and now I just, I love, you know, and that can be enjoying a coffee. Drop the clutch on the coffee. Anyway, I'm shutting the fuck up and I'm going to see you uh, another time. Until then, adios.